Hello and welcome to the Wingnet Travel Podcast with me, James Hammond. Personally, I have been to 50 countries. I've met so many people in my travels that I want to bring them on this podcast and get their story on record. I have plenty of tips and stories to share with you as well. Are you a backpacker or a traveller or gap year student or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you. Throughout the weeks and months, you'll get many guests and solo episodes where I try to cover all range of subjects within travel. This is a casual and informative travel podcast to inspire you to travel in the future. My patron, you can sign up for £4, $7.50 Canadian, US dollars a month, and this will give you an extra bonus episode per month, ad-free content, 24 hours early access to the episode. You can get a patron shout-out. I can also maybe get some ad-hoc podcast episodes that I might release during the month. And you'll also get some free stickers that I'll send to you in the post. If you're interested in that, head to patreon.com and forward slash winging it travel podcast and you'll find me there hope you enjoy the podcast thanks for listening and supporting this and i'll see you soon cheers james thanks for listening let's get into the episode hello and welcome to the winging it travel podcast and this week i'm joined by francois paradis discuss his trip to sudan in 2019 during the revolution in egypt and so i guess you started in egypt and africa right right that's right so i it's, it's funny because you know again i was talking about the fear factor mm. when i was in the flight to egypt that was 2019 and i remember like my family was super worried uh like my grandma was literally crying because you know she thought i was being reckless going to Egypt by myself like this. <laughs> so you, you can imagine, James, the amount of pressure this puts on a young man. You know, he's yeah. going on a trip and his family is like super worried and really, really tense. So it puts a lot of pressure on you as a young guy. And then I was in Zurich Airport, Switzerland, about to, well, doing my layover. And I remember thinking, I was, you know, going in the bathroom and then I got out and I remember thinking, man, you know, am I really doing this? Like I'm about to board the flight in an hour to Cairo. My family's really worried, you know, my they're super stressed and you know you really question yourself you, you talk to yourself in those moments you think yeah maybe i'm not maybe maybe they're right <laughs> but then i remember just landing in Cairo airport immediately people were really nice um amazing people like one guy even paid my book for my bus outside of the airport oh, and wow. after 30 minutes i just realized this whole fear factor was complete bs and people you know it was going to be fine i just had this sort of calm feeling in me of it's going to be all right. You know? You've actually given me the chills here. <laughs> I think because you said that the the nervousness and the anxiety on the flight, I think I reckon most travellers, I don't care where you've been or how long for, I think most people get that right when you're going to a country that's maybe not as familiar. And like you say, right. you arrive into the airport and it's like, ah, oh, like the first guy you see, oh, yeah, I pay for your bus. Like instantly like relieves you of the stress. And I think that's Completely. quite key. It was the, because I was really nervous getting to the airport because my family had like put so much, you know, they were so stressed out that I was thinking, you know, what if they're right? And, and then, yeah, I remember just walking out, getting on the bus, this guy pays for it. And then immediately I realized, you know, you just breathe and you realize it's going to be fine. You know, just trust your instincts and everything's going to work out. And it gave me that faith. And I think that's something that really helps me on my travel travels. I have faith in humanity. I believe that most yeah. people are not out there to get you. They're actually nice, decent people who will help if you if you uh, need assistance. And so that gives me the confidence to go. Yep, I totally agree with you there. For Egypt, my friend went there in twenty. Oh, it must have been around there, maybe just before you actually. And when he was there, he was speaking to some locals. I think this is like near Luxor, somewhere down there. And he was saying that 
the local was asking like you know why why are people not coming to egypt anymore and he was like saying maybe the media is like spinning it to be a dangerous country or it's a place to avoid but he's like why like we're nice people we want to see people here <laughs> it's like you don't hear that in the mainstream do you you hear that as a local in egypt so exactly your experience it's going to be way different to someone who's reading it or watching it on TV because you've been there, spoke to the people, and they're just as nice as anywhere else. Exactly. And you're completely right. Um, you know, people who just get their news and all they know about Egypt is a few sound bites that they saw on television. Mm. Their view of the country will be completely different from a backpacker who's, you know, been there and spent a month there. It's, it's going to be two different views. Yeah. And who would you rather take, the uh, the media or someone who's actually been there and spoke to the local people? I think I know which way I would go. <laughs> I think people exactly. listening to this podcast would go the same way. So we're in, we're in good hands. <laughs> Perfect. So, so tell the listeners, what was your rough plan for Egypt? I guess to land in Cairo, maybe check the city out, and then was it to right. travel down the Nile? So, so, was that your rough plan? So just, yeah, exactly. So going up, actually the Nile is, it's funny, the Nile is at its lowest point in Egypt and it's, it's highest point in uh, further south in Ethiopia and Uganda. Yeah. So even though we're going southward, technically we're going up the Nile, for, like in terms oh, of wow. altitude. Okay. It's kind of yeah. a funny, funny detail. But yeah, um, so in Egypt, again, um, I'm thinking, okay, is it going to be safe to hitchhike around? And I, I do it uh, perfectly fine, really nice people. It was during Ramadan, so... You know, I would be with drivers in their car and then the sun sets and people literally stop the, force you to stop the car on the road and yeah. like give you gifts, food, candies, <laughs> amazing sense of community. It was really a good time. I really enjoyed being there during Ramadan. Every night, you know, when the sun came down and I'd be walking down the streets, people, they have iftar, which is the break of the fast and they eat. And they'd always invite me. I'd come over, just join us, eat with us, you know. So it was a very nice communal time, you know, during Ramadan in Egypt. Fabulous time, really liked it. And then I worked my way uh, south. Uh, one thing I need to mention here. So my plan was to overland to uh, Ethiopia. Yeah. And I had planned that trip, you know, months in advance. But unfortunately, in April, there was... A revolution well the revolution had started before but essentially sudan was going through some serious turmoil at that time the uh dictator omar al-bashir had been uh, overthrown by the army mm-hmm. and then the army was ruling the country there were demonstrations it was pretty intense so I, i'm in egypt in cairo and i'm thinking well i want to cross because i want to go to ethiopia but everybody's like no no don't go to sudan don't go to sudan but again they've never been there they don't yeah. really know anybody there and I'm like, you know what, just logical standpoint, this conflict is an internal conflict between the people and the government, but it's got nothing to do with me as a Westerner. And like Canada's not involved. It's not uh, like Boko Haram in Nigeria where they, you know, they're anti-Western and yeah. there's some, this has nothing to do. This is just an internal conflict between the people. So I thought I can go, there's no, there won't be any problems. So I just get my visa in Cairo and then I sort of worked my way south. And then uh, after that, I, I hitchhiked with a bus and I crossed into Sudan. And just to give you an idea, again, you know, the butterflies, the stress of, okay, yeah. what's going to happen now? I'm getting into Sudan. Just to give you some update, uh, background, the internet was completely blacked out because I think I entered June 6th, 2019. And on the 3rd of June, there was a massacre in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. Um, where demonstrators were gunned down by the militias and something like 300 people were killed. 
Wow. So obviously you can imagine this young backpacker who, you know, was at the border ready to go. You hear the news of the massacre, internet completely backed out. And I'm thinking, man, what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah. But So it's obviously, you know, a tense situation. But again, some people would say, hey, why don't you just take a flight and fly over and go to Ethiopia? But I'm thinking I've already paid for the visa. The visa was $150. You know, it's quite expensive. You know, the visa is already on my passport. I've already got it. I can just go. So anyways, I get to the border. And my first impression of Sudan, the border guard says, hey, have you had dinner? I'm like, no. He's like, come over behind the counter and eat with me. And this guy <laughs> invites me behind the counter and literally serves me dinner. Oh, wow. So again, the same feeling as with the bus. Yeah. When that, when that happens, you sort of cool down and you realize, man, it's going to be okay. You know? Yeah. It's actually nice to hear, actually, in a weird way, because I think you're right. People would think, why are you doing that? Just skip Sudan. And then it's nice to hear that actually, I, I, you make a point about it. it's not you. And it's between the government and the military and, you know, it's that side, right? You You're just going to speak to local people and they're going to invite you in, in whatever situation they're in. So it's, it's kind of nice to hear that. Exactly. And I think the other thing too, is because of the sort of tense situation, people respect you because I've done it for countries that are a bit tense. And I, I clearly see a pattern, James, people respect you more when you go to the country, even if it's under a bit of tension, because well, one, they respect what they see as courage, but they also appreciate the fact that you came despite the situation yeah. So I think that custom, that customs guard, you know, he saw this young guy from Canada. I was 20 at the time and he probably thought, oh, well, you know, I'm happy to see him. He probably hadn't seen a, you know, a white traveler in weeks. So I don't know what went through his mind, but he just invited me behind to eat with him. And I, I really remember feeling like, wow, like this would never happen in America or in Canada. I've never no. had a border guard offer me dinner ever. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, definitely not U.S. <laughs> Um, yeah exactly it's 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 uh so so yeah that was pretty cool yeah i don't know if you get asked this question a lot but i i do get asked sometimes when i maybe share my plans maybe to go to like middle east for example or i mentioned myanmar because we went there um, before the troubles now and i like, oh, would you go back i'm like well yeah i would because the the real people on the ground they're not the ones who are maybe causing trouble right they would really appreciate right. if you turned up and had dinner at their restaurant because there's probably going to be not many people there and it's probably going to affect their livelihood. So of course I would go and speak and meet real local people in a country that maybe is slightly controversial or has a trouble at the time. No questions. And the other thing too, is that like in the case of Sudan in 2019, I'm already in the region. I've already paid for my flight to go to Egypt and things like that. And I'm not a multimillionaire. So if people say, well, just, you know, skip it and go another time. Well, no, it doesn't really work that way because I'm already right next to the border. You know, if I, if I skip at that time, you know, I might never go and, and see it because then I'll have seen Ethiopia and Egypt and I might not have any incentive to, you know, come again. I'm already in the region. So, you know, it's just a matter of practicalities as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're totally right. On that Passport My Stamp Facebook group, you do read a lot of these posts, don't you, about people who go to like these far-flung places that are not like popular and give their report of what it's like and what it's actually like. And they're, they're quite cool to read because it kind of 
makes you a bit more calmer about maybe going traveling to a certain place. Right. I feel like a lot of people have had that feeling after reading my report. They felt like, oh, well, it's actually possible to go to Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, you got a lot of uh, positive reaction on that and like right. a serious amount of likes and comments. So that's, that's great to see. Uh, just quickly for mm -hmm. Egypt, any highlights when you're there? What was maybe a favorite part or something that you would highly would, recommend? Well, I really like the Siwa Oasis. So it's near the Libyan border again. You know, people would say, oh, it's a red zone, it's near the Libyan border. Mm. What I did is when I was in the airport in Cairo, I ran into a Frenchman who'd been to Egypt many times. And I asked him, hey, do you know about the CUI Oasis? I've heard that people say you can't, it's not safe to go, but what's your take? He's like, oh, I've taken my family plenty of times. I'm going to bring my daughters there in a few days. So I thought if this guy feels comfortable enough to bring his daughters to that place, and he, you know, he's not a backpacker, he's a sort of normal suitcase traveler. Mm. I thought it's going to be fine. And then I went there and absolutely loved it. It's called the Siwa Oasis. You've got um, salt lakes, fresh water in the desert where you can swim. It's a beautiful area. And the people, uh, their native language is not Arabic like the rest of Egypt. They actually speak uh, Berber. So they're culturally very different from, uh, from other places in Egypt. It's a fabulous area. I would highly recommend if you go there, uh, Siwa Oasis. Okay, awesome. And I guess this might be a cliche question. I guess you saw the pyramids? Yeah, I did. I did see them. Yeah, have to ask that. I mean, who doesn't? But I need to ask. So but I was, uh, again, I was lucky. I saw them during, because it was Ramadan. Yes. It was fairly empty because people don't really want to go to Muslim countries during Ramadan because of the hassle. Like people mm. think, oh, I won't be able to get food. So again, very good tip. If you want to go to a Muslim country and you're willing to well, like, you can even you can find water and food anywhere. There's always a shop open, but go during Ramadan because there won't be any crowds. I was at the pyramids, you know, very important international site, and I think there was one tourist group, one tourist bus when I was there. Awesome, which is yeah. unusual. Usually, it's packed with people. Yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? Yeah, my friend Scott said the same thing when he was traveling. Uh, I think he went 2017 to Egypt. I think that's just after the revolution. Maybe I'm not sure, but yeah, he said that's super quiet no one around unbelievable that's what you want and and just another tip because you asked me what was my highlight i think ramadan was actually my highlight because yeah um i would go because there's obviously the the pyramids but there's also a lot of very nice tem ancient temples like egyptian temples uh in the south and there was one called the dandera temple it's uh north of Luxor. and because again because of ramadan i get there it's this massive beautiful archaeological site and I'm completely alone in the place. You almost feel like Indiana Jones. <laughs> you just walk in, there's literally nobody. And you've got the whole place to yourself and it was crazy. And I, I, I thought, wow, I'm very grateful that I came here during Ramadan because I get to see all these major sites, you know, for myself. Yeah, and also a question about Ramadan. I guess as a tourist or a Western or whatever, you, you can buy food during a day, right? Or is it not possible? Yeah, you can. I mean, okay. even people usually buy things anyways because well, first of all, there are Christians in Egypt. There's a okay. quite a significant minority of Christians, so yeah. they still, you know, do their normal life. So everything is still open, and families still buy food to prepare for dinner. So you know, shops will still sell vegetables, bread, uh, and even restaurants continue to be open. So you know, so maybe some places will be closed, but if you look well enough, you'll always find something. Okay, that's good to know. Awesome. Let's move on to Sudan. So yeah, revolution was happening at, at the same time. What was your plan for Sudan? Again, was it hitchhiking down the country? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> my plan was to hitchhike down the country. I, I had waited to for Ramadan to be over before going to Sudan because I thought in Egypt it's a bit more liberal. 
So I, I could find places to eat and drink, but I thought, let's go to Sedona once it's complete. Ramadan is finished because yeah. I knew it was more conservative, more um, religious. Yeah. So yeah, just sort of hitchhiked from the border to a place called Dongola. And then along the Nile, again, very nice, fantastic people. Like I might sound like everywhere I go, I'm saying the people are nice, <laughs> but Sudan, I'm, I'm being serious. The border guard that gave me dinner, like he's the epitome of the whole people. He, he symbolizes the whole people. They're ridiculously nice. You need somebody to get a lift. Within five minutes, they would offer you a water bottle and wouldn't let you pay in there. Like if you speak to anybody who's been to Sudan, and I'm sure you've heard people say that yeah. before. Yeah. They literally are some of the nicest people in the world. Really. Yeah. They're, they're ridiculously friendly. I don't doubt that, but I guess the problem here is that people would probably think not, right? Because of the maybe what they see on TV. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I've heard that before. Yeah, the nicest people. Is it right in Sudan that if you if you're like traveling in the desert or whatever, or come to their town, they have like free water, like from a well, like you can just go and pick it up yourself and like, yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like a traveler's yeah, bit yeah. where you can just refresh. Yeah, they have these these big sort of big buckets of water, and it's it's groundwater, and sometimes it's a little brown or like a little. <laughs> But you're, yeah. the thing is, you're so thirsty, you can't complain and you just sort of take a cup, drink, and, you know, you're happy with it. So that's the way it goes. You know, they, they provide free water because people are, of course, and it was there, in, I was there in June. So, you know, oh, wow. summer temperature, it's yeah. like 50 Celsius, you know, I was sweating. I think it's the hottest place I've ever been to. Actually, I better ask before we carry on, hitchhiking, maybe for some listeners who don't understand what that is, can you maybe explain what hitchhiking is? Right, so essentially you stand on the side of the road and you do a hand gesture, usually it's your thumb out with your hand and uh, you basically try to get a car to stop and drive it to notice you and then you ask for a lift with them, so a free ride if they're going to the same place as you're going to and they have space in their car, then you can get a lift with them uh, usually for free. Uh, it's to no extra cost to them because they already have space and they're going to it's, you're, you're going to a place that's on their way mm-hmm. and then you don't have to pay for buses and things like that so it's sort of a mutual exchange and usually drivers are quite happy to have company people to talk to talk to share stories especially in foreign countries they're always happy to see uh, a foreign traveler because you know how often do they see a canadian on the side of their road very, very <laughs> yeah. rarely yeah did you ever give like them maybe some i don't know a gift not a gift but like maybe a bit of food or as a thanks or did you try to offer anything or did they Flat out yeah, usually I no usually in these countries I always offer uh, depending like if, if it's a VIP car like a businessman or something then I don't necessarily offer unless they ask but if it's somebody that I can see okay this guy you know he's quite cool then I always offer but yeah. usually they they refuse because of their culture especially in Sudan I remember one time I was with a truck driver really nice guy. And at the end of the ride, I said, hey, you know, how much do I owe you? And he's like, no, 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 forget about it, you know. And, and you can tell that's, that's what, to this day, I still wonder, and it's, it's a big question in my mind, James. It's like, yeah. these people don't worship money to the level that we Westerners do, you know. Agreed. Like, and money has become sort of, from my perspective, it's, you know, the, the new God. People are very materialistic and, yeah. you know, money is everything. And... In countries like Sudan, it's not, I mean, yes, you'll find these materialistic people and, and you know, you'll see some of that, but they still have this sort of um, old system where they have higher values. And I'll give you a quick example with that trucker that refused my payment. Mm. We were going through the Sahara 
And at some point he pulls over the truck. It's, it's dark outside, completely dark, you know, barren Sahara. And I'm thinking, hmm, what's, got, what's going on? Did something okay. happen? He gets out of the truck and I see him take out his praying mat, uh, spread it in the desert, completely barren, alone, dark, completely pitch dark. And just, he starts praying towards Mecca. And I was, I was completely struck. I thought, wow, this guy, you know, stops his vehicle in the desert and prays while nobody's watching him. You know, it's not like his brother or his friends are going to judge him. Nobody can, you know, judge him. And I'm a foreigner. He knows I'm not a Muslim. Mm. And yet he's taking the time to do that. And he did that several times during the journey. And I thought, wow, these people have such a high level of devotion. It's impressive. You know, they, they, they really have uh, meaning in their lives, which sometimes I find la- lacking in the West. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I cannot agree more. And I think that also comes back to what we discussed earlier about, you know, we talked about saving for a trip. So people ask me like, yeah, but don't you like the car, for example, I've never really owned a proper car. I've owned rubbish secondhand cars. Right. And yeah, they, they break down after two years, but I don't care. Cause I'm never going to spend that much money on a thing because I always think, oh yeah, that could be three months in Asia or whatever. Right. That's my mentality. So it comes back to yeah these people that they don't care about things and a bit like me and you we don't care about things we'd rather go and experience something rather than have right. things because at the end of the day things don't matter right exactly and i think in his case you know his cultural view both um because of islam religious perspective but also arabic cultural perspective was telling him like don't take money from a guest that's what they believe yeah. and so yeah. this was more important respecting his religious and cultural norms was more important to him than the 10 bucks I could have given him. Whereas you'll rarely see that in the West where like, as I said, usually money, you know, yeah. that is the higher um, good. But for him, it's like, no, no, no. I, you know, money is below my other values. So it's very impressive and quite a humbling moment to be honest. I'm, I'm glad you experienced that. And I think we're, I don't know, this is a bit, maybe a bit deeper, but I don't know if we're at a crossroads at the minute with this whole system that we have in the West where it is money, so money based. I just wonder if that's going to, start to have a, a follow-on effect on maybe people's mental health because people are starting to realize like oh shit like an apartment with a car i mean it's all right once you buy it but, but you always fall for it don't you You always like build up to buying like a, I don't know, a macbook pro or or a brand new car and then you buy it and then the feeling afterwards is always like oh yeah it's not as good as i thought it'd be it's always the case when you buy things when you go travel i think you come back going oh wow what a trip like had an amazing time i can tell you these stories i recommend this like you would talk enthusiastically about it rather than yeah, it's just a car. <laughs> like it's completely You're right. Different. You're right. And I think that to get back to the subculture, when we earlier spoke about the traveling subculture, which we're both part of, I think that's something that binds travelers together in that subculture is that usually uh, we're, we're not so much into things, but we're more into experiences. Mm. And so that's why travelers usually love to like us right now, or when you go to a hostel and you have, you know, a beer with people, usually that's a common trait among the traveling subculture. We, we value experiences more than material things. Yeah. I wonder if that's growing that culture, especially with the newer generation. Maybe COVID had an effect as well, where people start to realize, oh, oh yeah, having things is you know, it's all right, but it's not going to help with COVID, is it? But like, you could maybe like spend a year during COVID doing all travel stuff, right? You can maybe get some stuff together, create a website, podcast, whatever, right? But imagining you just mm-hmm. have things, you can't do anything with those things in COVID, for example, because what can you do with them? You can't drive around. Like, so maybe yeah. these experiences are just worth more in the long run. And, and to get back to Sudan, like the, 
as I said, the entire internet was blacked out for the whole three weeks yeah. I was there. So, you know, you have a lot of time to think because the internet was blacked out. Like initially I was like, oh, I know that's a downer. I mean, there won't be any internet because I've always been used to having, you know, 24-7 internet. But it was like, in the end, in hindsight, it was a good thing because not having internet for three weeks gives you time to think, time to observe, time to reflect. Mm -hmm. And I think I enjoyed the trip even more because of that. Because, for instance, you know, I'd be at a small local restaurant with Sudanese people and we would have to talk to each other. We couldn't be on our phones, you know, looking at, yeah. you know, Google, Instagram or YouTube or whatever. We'd have to communicate. So it was interesting. And the thing is, for the whole time, there was no Internet. And people there were still happy. They were talking with their mates. They were sort of, I know it's cliche, but they were sort of smiling and happy and chatting and playing cards and whatnot. And I remember thinking, man, if this happened in my hometown, Quebec City, I just can't imagine people reacting like this. You know, everybody's, mm. people would be bitching like, oh, I don't have internet. I can't play my video games or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, that's something I realized. Like, they, do you know, like, I'm trying to find the way, a way to put it. What do you think it is that makes these people happier, even though they, they don't have necessarily the technology that we have in the West? Any uh -huh. idea? I would put it simply down to, I mean, this is my opinion, is human connection. I think phones have made, and technology to a degree, has made people more lonely. You must have seen this before, right? Take yourself back to maybe Europe, for example, and you're in a hostel, right? How many times did you see people on their phones just sitting in the, in the hostel the communal room? When I, when I travelled in 2013, to give you an example, and this is why I agree, and we talked about some last three episodes, actually, you basically experienced Sudan as the old way of traveling, maybe the 90s, for example, where internet was a very occasional thing. You might go to a hostel or hotel which has internet dial up. You, you log on to email and send an email, right? Or in my era, sort of early 2010s, you maybe can quick log on to Facebook, do a status, and that's it. You've experienced what I experienced in 2013, where, yeah, you go to a hostel and you kind of have to talk to someone. And I think you then develop relationships. And I think that's why people in these countries, they've probably just got such a community spirit that we don't really have that as much anymore because maybe you don't have to go and speak to someone. You don't have to go out. You can just sit on your phone and read Instagram or read Facebook, which is quite a sad thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because at one point I remember um, meeting, uh, I think it was a Portuguese traveler in Sunan, and there was also an Indian cyclist. Mm -hmm. And we sort of met into the same hostel and... You know, we, we none of us had internet, of course. Entertain ourselves. We had no other choice but to talk to each other, and we ended up having that really interesting conversation, sharing experiences, travel stories, and so forth. And we ended up having a great evening. And I remember thinking, well, you know, if we had had the internet, mm -hmm. maybe one of us would have been like, oh, I'll just go and talk to my friends back home or something. And that's the thing: when you don't have the internet, you're you're forced to be in the moment, talking to the people that are around you. Whereas, like you said, in hostels in Europe, you know, people, how many times will you see somebody Skyping yeah. with, you know, their mom? And there's nothing wrong with talking to your mom when you're on the road. But the thing is, it pulls you out of the, the present moment. And I, I think you're not enjoying as much because you're not focused on what you're doing. You're constantly thinking about things home. And, you know, travel is also taking a break from home. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you've you got your home in your pocket, right? That's the problem. Exactly. The whole point is going away from home, right? So it's a, it's a real, you've got to make a decision, I think, if you travel, like not, not you, I mean, like people in general that where 
I think you would need the internet. You probably would need a SIM card just for backup, maybe just to make sure you can check in now and then. But you've got to be really strict with like, I'm only going to use it between this time, maybe every two days, because you want to be involved in the travel experience and not just on your phone. Um, right, I think that's going to be a big, th- I, I'm keen to see what you think about that, whether I should do that, because when we go traveling next, my added thing here is I've got a podcast now and I want to keep it going. So I'm going to need internet. So I'm going to have to get a SIM card, which has like a, a lot of data, for example, but I've got to be really strict here. And I am just like, no, when it's like between these certain hours, I am involved in the experience, whether it's speaking to a local, whether that's speaking to travelers in a hostel, whatever it is, because it's so easy mm-hmm. just to go on your phone and it. it's too easy. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the best moments, like I'll give you an example in Sudan, um, at some point I'm in the city of Dongola and I get a ride hitchhiking. It's actually one of my craziest rides. It's a watermelon truck and, <laughs> yeah. it, and it's going all the way to Khartoum, but because it's a slow, like old truck and it's a slow one, it's going to take like 12 hours to drive, you know, it's a sort of old truck and through the night. And I asked the guy, I said, hey, do you mind if I go in the back of where the watermelons are? And I just sort of lay down there and sleep. And he's like, yeah, sure. So for 12 hours during the whole night, I didn't, again, no internet. So I couldn't just, you know, use my data to scroll Facebook or something. Hmm. So what am I doing? I'm just looking at the stars, appreciating the night beauty. And to this day, it is still one of the best nights of my life. I'm just writing down on, on watermelons through the night in Sudan looking at the amazing desert stars because there's no light pollution. So you can really see the sky well and all the bright stars. And, and it was just amazing. Again, if I had had my phone, the temptation would have been there to take it out, use my 4G to look at things or a YouTube video or something. But no, there I was. And all I had to do was look at the stars and enjoy it. So it was definitely a great moment. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's, key to do those things to get those experiences and i think when we were in india for three months we had we did have a sim card each and i think where it really came in handy maybe is like those overnight trains because in india the trains are great but they take a while so you'd probably want to be entertained if you can't sleep for example um Mm -hmm. which came in handy right um but yeah other than that you need to get really be involved in the in the actual experience of traveling because i don't actually recall in india us ever being on our phones we're always involved in a you know, speaking to the local or a traveler or traveling around doing stuff. So it's very easy. Like I saw a sign once in Iceland. I don't know if you agree with this. Someone put a sign outside a hostel which said traveling is turning into people flying to another country to be on their phone. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, how bad is that? Like, yeah, <laughs> you just travel to another country okay. and sit on your phone. <laughs> God. Yeah, it's, it's true, but it's mostly... In, 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 like we said, like in Europe and hostels and things like that. But I think once you go, like for example, Pakistan here, I've met a few travelers and it's not to like boast or anything, but I do think that certain destinations attract a certain type of traveler. Yeah. And I think that people who, you know, go to Afghanistan or Pakistan or Sudan in a place like here in Pakistan, the few times that I've met uh, a Chinese backpacker or a Dutch backpacker, mm. you know, they're not so much into their phones. They're in for something else. Yes. And it's, it's really something that I've seen. I've never been to Southeast Asia, so I don't know about Southeast Asia, but definitely Europe. I would see that all the time. Yeah. Southeast Asia is, is very much like, I want to say it's like Europe, but becomes so modernized that you, know, you can, if you want to be, you can be on your laptop or phone all day. No, no problem. There's, there's Wi-Fi everywhere. But there's also, Southeast Asia is weird, right? Because there's also 
a big community of people traveling. So you'd always meet a group or you'd always meet someone in the hostel you stay at or in the place that you're at because there's always it's quite a popular route. So I think you could all have a good time there because you're in the moment with new friends. I don't think there would be a situation where you just want to sit on your friend in a hostel, maybe occasionally, but I think there's a bit of a culture there where people just want to get together and have a good time and see stuff and do stuff. But Europe, yeah, it's, it's maybe a bit different. I'm not sure. For Sudan, I've got some quick questions. Do they speak French in Sudan? Uh, no, they speak English. It's Well, they speak Arabic as yeah. the first language, but they were a British colony, so English yeah. is the second language. Okay. And got some like quick fire questions about Sudan, really. What was maybe a highlight or a tip that if someone's thinking about going to Sudan, they should visit or a place? Mm, in Sudan, um, the, the Meroid pyramids are quite famous. A lot of people go there. Uh, there's a famous pyramid uh, archaeological site. Yeah. The definite, the highlight of Sudan, I would say, is if you can hitchhike it, you'll meet tremendously nice people. The highlight is the people in Sudan. Yes. Uh, okay. Egypt, you can still say there's certain touristic places. But in Sudan, it's not a country that I would say has a lot of natural beauty, or I wouldn't say it's a country that has a lot of archaeological, it does have archaeological sites, but not as many as Egypt, but mm -hmm. definitely the people, the people are the highlight, get invited into somebody's home, you know, see how they live, that would be my recommendation if you go to Sudan. Yeah, how many times did that happen, do you think, where you got invited into someone's home to have maybe food or a drink? Oh, in Sudan, it's, it's literally, I think, 90% of the trip, because <laughs> you're... Wow. You're, the thing is, you're alone. I don't yeah. know if it's, I've had a conversation with my mom about this, sort of a debate, because she was wondering if it's because I'm younger. She said, oh, you're younger, people have more sympathy for you, so they help you out more. And I said, I don't think that's what it is, because I've met people that are older who have just as good experiences. Mm. I think it's because when I go somewhere, I well, you're alone, first of all, so people see you as more vulnerable, and therefore they want to help you. Yeah, And it's also the attitude. You come in with a smile, you look sort of happy, optimistic, open, and you're willing to chat, you're willing to greet people. You know, sometimes it's as simple as saying hi to somebody. Hmm. And, you know, that guy will say, hey, where are you from? And then the conversation starts and he says, oh, well, how about you come and visit my village here and I'll show you around and, you know, and then things go from there. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the key, if you want uh, people in the country to open up to you, is to simply not be shy approach it can be a simple greeting, simple hello, smile, starting conversation at a shop. And usually people won't do the first move, but if they see that you're open, they'll feel comfortable and then they invite you. Okay, awesome. And also hitchhiking in Sudan, was there any times where you were a bit stuck or you couldn't get a lift? Uh, never. It's never, never happened. Wow. I was, I was very lucky, but it never happened. Uh, because again, put yourself in the shoes of a, a Sudanese driver. You're you're driving down the, yeah. the road, and you see this white guy with a hat on, thumbing a lift. You're curious. You're like, "What the heck is he doing here? I want to know more." About <laughs> but the first thing you're going to do is you're going to stop your car, pull over with a big smile, and say, "Hey, hop on, hop on, hop on in. What are you doing? Where are you going?" So it was just fantastic. Very, very easy to hitchhike, even at night. I've done night hitchhiking there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people are, are fabulous. Um, you know, even though, as I said, there's not that many like sites, like there are some sites, but not as many as Egypt. Mm. It's still a country that I would like to go back to just for the people because I know that I will enjoy it. Wow. 
And also, night hitchhiking is a different level, right? Again, another thing people talk about, oh, you can't travel at night. I mean, can you? I mean, I guess you can, right? Like you said, you, you yeah. did in Sudan, so definitely possible. That's right. I've, I've done it in Sudan, and the, like usually you just have to be a bit more creative. So, for example, like you said, most people would say, oh, it's, it's impossible to hitchhike in the daylight alone at night. No, you just take a flashlight, for example, and with the light, you're going to attract drivers. You go to a place where they're going slowly, where there's maybe a speed bump, so they have time to see you, and and that's going to work. And you know, and a guy picked me up, really nice guy, and we had a, you know, what I love the most actually, because you asked about the highlights, but the Sahara, it's yeah. so barren and flat, and you can just look around, and you don't see, you see, look at the horizon, and there's just no mountains. It's completely vast empty land that's a mm. beautiful sight in and of itself yeah i can imagine sunrise there being pretty awesome or even sunset yeah 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 i remember watching the sunset and it's uh it's definitely a nice uh, experience awesome okay a couple more questions maybe a favorite meal that you got invited into someone's home what was the best bit of food that you uh, had so in sudan uh, in terms of food it's it's pretty simple like they almost always eat something they call ful f-u-l which is like beans so again very sort of simple food and they like they will eat this dish for like lunch and dinner especially in the villages it's quite repetitive mm-hmm. so a lot, a lot of people would say oh you know that's that's boring food but uh i don't mind if the locals are eating it i'll just you know what they're eating is beans with some tomatoes i'll just eat that and and i'll be fine <laughs> hey i'll take that easy we've got to mention maybe the revolution did you did you come across any problems of that in Sudan in your three or four weeks there? Did, was there anything that was related to it, yeah. which maybe you got in trouble yeah. with or oh, anything? Yeah. It's funny. It's funny you bring it up. There was actually. So at one point, so, okay, just to give sort of an understanding for the listeners, because of the, I get in after the massacre, there's militias all over the country that are in, in the streets with, you know, machine guns. Yeah. They're sort of patrolling and essentially trying to intimidate the, the population by just being physically present in the eyesight of the people. They're not yeah. like going around and shooting. They're just in the streets, guarding and, and uh, standing there. And at some point I'm meeting a, a shawarma and I see this guy with a big box fed machine gun <laughs> on a pickup with, you know, guns. And anyways, it was, it really looked interesting. And I thought, oh man, maybe I can just get a picture without him noticing, so I can have a memory of that. So I, I'm sure nobody's gonna see me, and I just go okay, click with my phone. I don't have a camera, I have a phone, so yeah. you know, I just take a pic, and I'm like, oh yeah, I got it, he didn't see. And right as I said that, a guy in civilian uh, clothing on a bike that was passing me on the street comes out of nowhere, grabs me by the shoulder, by the arm, and pulls me, towards the militia guy whom I took a picture of and he and I'm like oh oh that's bad because like you know yeah. these guys just shot people two weeks ago you know, I don't know what's gonna happen <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm right next to the Nile River so I'm thinking you know if oh, something no. happens he can just throw my body in the water I'm like fuck what's gonna happen so the, so anyways he brings me there and then I go okay I have to think quick how am I gonna get out of this I've got to find something so he, he brings me to the guy and just goes like, oh, yeah, he's taking a picture of you, you know, you know, uh, wh- whatever. Uh, 
but trying to make a situation. And then I just go, okay, I have to play the dumb tourist card to just make it look like a no big deal and move on. Yeah. So I just go and as a joke, I said to the guy like, oh yeah, uh, I just wanted to take a selfie with you. I like your, your guns and uniform look amazing. I, do you mind if I could get a selfie with you? And then the guy looks at me like, what kind of idiot is he? And, and <laughs> it, just, it just ends like this. But I was playing the game. I never wanted to selfie with the guy, but I just thought if I play this, yeah, yeah. Um, I need a person. And then as soon as that's over, I look at the guy in seven clothes and I'm like, who the hell are you? And he's like, I'm private, uh, not private, sorry, secret service. And then he just moves, he, he leaves on his bike immediately. Uh, so this guy, that's what I learned about the country. And I told that, that anecdote to Sudanese people later on. There's secret service people that are sort of patrolling uh, the city dressed in local, uh, yeah. normal, you know, civilian clothing, and they're just watching and monitoring things. And I, I was unlucky enough that when I took that picture, <laughs> this guy was riding past me. Because initially I was like, who the hell is this guy? You know, he's just a, a random biker and yeah, yeah. he's pulling me out. But it turned out it was the secret police, so that was pretty bad. <laughs> Did the guy enjoy the selfie? Was he happy with that? <laughs> well, what's really funny, and you won't even believe it, so on the spot he said, like, like I actually didn't get a selfie because yeah, like it was just whatever. Like let's move on. But then afterwards, I met uh, another guy who was um, sort of like he had connections with these guys. I guess I'm not exactly sure, but he was more comfortable mm. with the militias. And I joked. I said, "Do you think I could get a picture with them as a memory?" And he goes, "Yeah, sure, no problem. I'll go talk to them." I'm like, really? Like, oh no, they're going to recognize me because it was the same spot, the same people where that had happened. Yeah. He walks up to them and he asks, hey, this guy wants to take a picture and they accept it. So I ended up getting a picture at the exact same spot where I had the incident happen, the, the same incident, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, so it was pretty Amazing. funny. Okay. <laughs> and you got a photo for life there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was really scared. I was really, really scared because I thought, you know, the Nile is right next to them. Yeah, you get dumped you know, in what there. Are they gonna do? <laughs> yeah, that was a scary moment. And another quick anecdote. At some point, I wanted to go. I asked people, I said, is Darfur safe to go yeah. uh, now? And you always get conflicting. You probably noticed that, but you always get conflicting reports when you ask people about a country or a place. Like some people say, yeah, it's fine. You know, I've been there. You can go, whatever. Others are like, no, 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 don't go. So I was getting mixed reports. Some people saying you can go, some people don't. I ended up trying to go to Darfur and I got blocked in a town called Ennahud. Basically, I'm walking around the town buying some food in a market and these two guys show up next to me mm. and they just bring me in a car and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Is that a kidnapping? <laughs> and again, secret police, they're investigating what are you doing in the town? What are you doing here? Where are you going? They bring me to their base. Um, so, you know, I just talked with them. I am trying to go there. Is it possible? They're like, no, no, no. We don't allow you to go there, but you can have lunch with us. And in the end, that, that's why it's funny because they're, they're kind of arresting you. But at the same time, they're like very nice giving you food. And yeah. And, but you know what's funny, uh, James? These experiences, of course, when you're in the moment, very stressful, very scary. Yeah. It's annoying. But in hindsight, um, they're they're actually beneficial because they build up my experience and they yeah you get some skills from that you learn how to handle these investigators you learn how to act 
And that is helpful later on when you're in Afghanistan and the Taliban are detaining you, asking you questions, because you've had that experience before in Sudan, in Ethiopia and other places, and you know how to behave. So it was actually a good thing that it happened because, you know, it, it helped me in the long run. Yeah, it prepares you, right, for those situations in the future. Um, exactly. it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird paradox because you don't want to be in those situations, but you kind of do, right? You don't want to be because it's scary, it's stressful at the time, like you said. But actually you do because you learn how to maybe negotiate or to get your way out of a situation. So um, I don't think you go, I don't think people go looking for these things. They just happen. Right. But when they do happen, like you say, in hindsight, it's great. And I would have loved to not have that happen and just go to Darfur because I knew somebody that could have hosted me a doctor and it would have been fine. And I was like, ah, man, I couldn't go. They turned me down. They turned me back. But in hindsight, you know, I learned from it. I learned, uh, from the experience and you know for example sometimes you don't know okay how are you going to get out of the detention are you going to make a bit of a scene are you going to cooperate are you going to do this mm. you learn how to read people and like in sudan for example i tried at some point making a scene to see if it would work if you get a bit angry and you sort of oh yeah like, shout a little bit completely didn't work the guy like <laughs> shouted back but oh, it's God. good that i learned it there because at least i could afford to make a mistake there and the experience was valuable yes Yes. Later on, when I was detained in Afghanistan, that's good because having been through that, I didn't do the mistake that maybe it could have been lethal in the wrong environment. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Yeah, you got maybe test the water sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I totally hear what you're saying. Okay. Should we move on to China? Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. So the year that you're traveling China was when? 2018. That was my first trip after Europe. Okay, and... I guess the same premise here, you're going to try and hitchhike some of the country? No, unfortunately, that's that's uh, something that's a bit sad. I did China before I discovered my love for uh, hitchhiking. I started hitchhiking when I was in South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. Yeah. But when I did China, I was still, it was still in the beginning of my uh, travel career, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So I was still a bit nervous. So I would take trains and buses in China. Right, but I did not hitchhike, and that's a bit of a shame because I really want to go back and travel China, through China the way that I'm now used to travel to get mm. a uh, different experience. And I got in uh, in Hong Kong, and yeah. then I crossed through Shenzhen. So, have you ever been to that area? No, I've not. No. But even without hitchhiking, I still uh, had a fabulous time uh, in China. One of the things that people don't know about China is just how diverse it is. Every region has its own cuisine, a huge variety uh, of landscape, depending on where you are in China. So that was really interesting to see how uh, it's not this one monolithic country. It's uh, it's massive. I think it's the third largest country on earth huge. after yeah. Canada. Yeah. In the South, you have a lot of ethnic minorities. Um, I, I, I got to see, uh, I did some nice hiking in Tiger, around Tiger Leaping Gorge, and then went to uh, through Yunnan, had a great time in Yunnan. Saw some, again, ethnic uh, minorities. I forget the name, but really nice uh, experience. And then I heard that you could actually see Tibet without going to Tibet proper in China. Like, you know, there's like pro- there's the province of Tibet yep. where you need to have a guide and a permit and it's yeah, really yeah. annoying. But there's Tibetans living outside of the province, outside of the boundary. Okay. And like Tibetan autonomous zone. So, for example, you'll be in Sichuan. I don't know if you have a map of China. Yeah, 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 Sichuan. Yeah. So, so, for example, in Sichuan, you'll have a town called Litang, L-I-T-A-N-G. And that okay. town is inhabited by Tibetans. And it's the same as Tibet, the same religion, the same buildings. It's pretty much Tibet. 
but oh. it's outside of the administrative province and therefore you're allowed to go and you don't <laughs> have the same restrictions just because of the silly province border so it's a technical thing yeah because on the map it says so to give you an example what i can see um a couple of places here it says uh i don't know if it's right engawa agawa tibetan and kiang autonomous prefecture and then there's one called gaze tibetan autonomous that's right and you can go to those you're allowed to go there so what, what's the thinking there then? It's just that Tibetans have just like settled there and kind of kept their little culture then. Uh, I think it's because when the, um, when the Chinese took over Tibet, I, I think they changed the boundaries and, and they just made the, the province smaller. Uh, but but, but yeah, the, these areas used to be part of, uh, I think they used to be three big kingdoms of Tibet. I can't remember exactly, but right. they, they were all part of Greater Tibet, uh, historically speaking. But it's just when the Chinese took over, they, they drew these new boundaries for these different provinces mm. and and they they made tibet a smaller one but in terms of the culture um they, they eat yak mead um the tibetan monastery they have their you know buddhism and um, mm. the monks live there and it's the i think it's very in fact i've heard people say that litong feels more tibetan than lhasa lhasa is the capital of the province yeah. of tibet but because there's been so many chinese uh going to lhasa mm. i've heard that now it's changed a lot and it, it doesn't feel authentic anymore. Right. Whereas in Litang, I could really feel that, okay, you know, everybody looks Tibetan. They look different from other Chinese. Their food is different. The, the, you, they have uh, beautiful monasteries with uh, amazing colors inside and, and art. And it's, it's really nice. So, yeah. In fact, you can even see, I didn't do it, but you can go and see an open air I forget the name of it. You know this tradition where a, they put a corpse outside and um, oh. birds come to eat it? Do you know right. what I'm talking about? I don't know that, no. <laughs> they Tibetan have that tradition when they, instead of burying somebody, yeah, they'll lay down the the corpse and then vultures will come and eat it. Like the cycle oh, yeah. of life. They want to give it back to nature or something yeah. like this. And, and I know people who've seen that. If you speak to the right people and somebody happened to have passed away, you you can see that ceremony when they uh, and then of course that's purely Tibetan. The Chinese don't do this at all, so yeah, mm. that's quite uh, interesting. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you if you don't have time to get across the Lhasa, which is quite far away, you can go to this region. I didn't even know about this until now, where it is like just a Tibetan autonomous region, and they've got so many different towns and and villages and cities there, where you, maybe you can get that culture without going too far west. So it's quite interesting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, you don't have to pay for a guide. You don't have to get the permit because you can only get the permit through a tour. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, if you want to see it, you can be like, okay, well, instead of going to Lhasa, I'll just go to Litang or other. There's many of, of those areas. I think all around Tibet, the the bordering regions of the other provinces are all inhabited by ethnic Tibetans, and you can get a feel of their culture. Mm. by going there talking to you about it now i almost regret not uh witnessing that um open air bur uh, bur burial oh yeah because i think it would have been a really nice life experience to to witness that yeah or, or, or i was going to say I, I just find it a bit weird that you have to have a, a guide or a tour in tibet but you don't in a region that is tibetan in like more mainland china i just can't get my head around that doesn't make sense <laughs> there are some restrictions though like for example i think i was there in april yeah, and I, I was told that a, an American guy tried to go in March to the same region that where Litong is. Yeah, and he was turned back because March is a special month. I don't remember why, but it's a special month for the Tibetans, 
and it's usually a month where some monks will light themselves on fire as protest oh, or right. it has some sort of significance and a yeah. lot of political um, things happen in, uh, in the month of March from what I've heard in Tibetan areas. So the police at any time, it's kind of the, at the whim of the police, they can choose to turn you back at the checkpoint or not. And mm. I remember being in this place called Shangri-La and asking about it. And people said, yeah, you can fire your luck. Uh, two weeks ago, an American guy was turned back, but yeah. it was March, it was a special month. So on the bus, I didn't even know if they would let me in or not, because the only experience I'd heard of was that American guy getting turned back. But now <laughs> it was April, and I thought, okay, April is a different month. Let's try it. And they let me through, and I got to, to see it. So there are some restrictions, but uh, not as many as in Tibet proper. Yeah, okay. I get it. Yeah. When you look at a map as well, Tibet is huge. <laughs> like It is actually bigger than I thought it was. And that's a huge area to try and contain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's massive. Another thing I'll say about just China, generally speaking, is that people, um, you know, sometimes people will be impressed by my trip to Afghanistan or to other countries. But I will say, of all the countries I've been to, to this day, the hardest one for me to travel in remains China because of the language barrier. Mm. Like, I, I think it's easier to travel in Afghanistan than it is in China from, from my perspective. Because in China, at least when I was there in 2018, very few people speak, speak English. There are yeah. some people who do, but in terms of percentage, it's, it's tiny. You can't read anything. Everything is written in their own script. Yeah. It's really hard to, to, to read. And if you need to ask directions or things like that, it's a headache. That You need to use a VPN because a lot of websites are blocked. Even Google sure. Maps doesn't work. You yeah. need to even email all that stuff. So you, you have to do all that stuff in advance. And uh, a lot of hotels will refuse you. They don't allow foreigners to stay there. They only allow foreigners at certain designated places. So <laughs> wow. you can try five, six hotels, but for some weird reason, they don't allow foreigners. And then it becomes difficult to, to find a place to sleep. Yeah. So China, a lot of people go there uh, on tour groups. Like of all the countries, I think China is the one where I hear that uh, most people go there uh, with a tour. Would you agree? Right. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I read a blog actually a few blogs the other day because i was doing a bit of research about china and one was saying first of all what you said in especially in the countryside so you know we're talking outside the big cities no one speaks english nothing's in english written it's really hard but equally people were happy to see um, some foreigners like the locals living there so i read that and also yeah. china's is so big i i think people would like get intimidated by going to china first of all because probably unfortunately news and the public persona of china of like you might think it's a dangerous country or they're they're after one thing and they're dangerous to america blah 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 and also it is just so big like where where would you even start so i think people would yeah. probably book a tour. yeah it's massive it's massive and it's sometimes hard to get information if you don't speak chinese uh, even outside yes. on, on google a lot of things uh, it's it's an unexplored country i feel like from a way like yes people do go to beijing they go to shanghai there's 1.3 billion people there's so many v- cities and villages and provinces and there's places where, like, like they've never seen a foreigner before, and nobody. If you go, if you Google in English uh, online, you won't find any information about some remote yeah. place of I don't know, Shangxi Province or Guangdong. Like sometimes, it's really hard to find accurate information. And it's all, it's also opened up, I think, relatively recently. I think I can't remember when, but I think up until the late '80s, it was not allowed to go there without a guide or something like this. Yeah, that's it used true. to be very hard to go to China, so. Uh, I think it opened up in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. So it's not that uh, long ago. And on the flip side, that you could you could arguably say, well, it's a great time to go because 
Exactly. So it's quite yeah. rare to go somewhere where they don't have anyone speaking English or even any signs. So you really are like in the opposite end of the, the comfort zone, right? You've really got to try and figure things out or even try and learn some language because how are you going to get by? So it could be like a real like hardcore travelers, like that sort of trip at the end of the scale yeah. where it's, it's tough. That's yeah. Quite yeah. And, and, and it's so funny you say that because I'm 23 now and I went there, I was, I had just turned 19. I went there, yeah. uh, March, March of 2018. And I, I'm born in 99. So, um, I was, I had just turned 19. And even now when I look back, I think, you know, how did I gather the courage to go at that time? Because, even after having done all these other countries, I still look back and see China as this daunting, difficult country to travel through. And uh, and I think my thinking at the time was, if I can do China, then I can do any country. Mm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Like if you can properly travel in China by yourself and go around and, you know, you feel comfortable, you manage to find your way, then I would say no other country will be as hard in terms of solo backpacking. Uh, that, that would be my, I haven't done all the countries, so I can't yeah, comment, yeah. but my feeling would be, uh, would be that, uh, what, what would you say? Yeah. Outside of Shanghai, Beijing, Wuhan. Yeah. I, I think I, yeah, you're yeah. totally right. It's be... Yeah. I, I would kind of, you're right. I wouldn't, I haven't even been to Shanghai cause I knew it was going to be like uh, Chinese New York or something, but yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Like you said, if, we, if we're excluding here Beijing and, and, and Shanghai, but like the small places, uh, for sure, um, very, very um, tough to travel. And when I left China, I took a ferry to South Korea and I left from a place called Weihai. You can, uh, W-E-I-H-A-I. It's yeah. on the peninsula. You see there's this northeastern peninsula yeah, in yeah. China. Like, yeah. and, and when I was there, just to find information about the ferry, how much it would cost, when would it leave, very hard very hard <laughs> there's almost no information online in english the only information i would find was in chinese i'd had to ask people then i had to go to the ferry terminal they were super shocked to see me they i think i was the first westerner to take that ferry because nobody goes to way high like and no. nobody has heard of way high nobody knows where that is it's, <laughs> it's like, and i would i remember like walking on the on the seaside because it's near the yellow sea i yeah. think I would I would be walking here and people in restaurants would see me and they would invite me to eat with them the delicious Chinese food that they had ordered and they would call their relatives on uh, their local uh, FaceTime app, their local yeah. social media app. And they would like, while we're eating, just show me to their aunt or their cousin or their <laughs> friend because they were just shocked to be a foreigner. So yeah, China is a very, uh, you might've heard that, like people asking you for selfies and stuff in China. Oh, it's happened loads or in Asia in general, but yeah. Yeah. But like really in China, it was, it was really some, something strange. Like the guy inviting me uh, to eat and then just calling his friend and like taking pictures and you almost feel like uh, you're a zoo animal or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine you were hitchhiking now, right in China, let's say it's your next trip. Like that's going to happen all the time because that's going to be everywhere. I think a bar, a few cities, because they're going to be like, who the oh, hell is yeah. this guy? Yeah, yeah, that's what, what I've, I've heard. That I've also heard China is a great country, and that's why I'm looking forward yeah. to go hitchhiking there. Because it, yeah, it's like this on steroids, like you said. Because even in the trains, people would do that. They would take their phone out. I remember one lady. I was just eating, and like she's staring at me with her phone, recording me. I can see the light in the phone that's recording. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah just like showing me to somebody because 
I don't know, she's never seen a white person and she wants to show it to, to someone. One word I'll say about Chinese hospitality, because a lot of people, like you said, a bit, they have a bit of a negative image of China. Yes. And they're a bit fearful, apprehensive. And I had not expected that. I was quite surprised. But to my surprise, China was quite hospitable and far more than I had expected, mm-hmm. meaning that in spite of the language barrier, despite the, the communication difficulties, there would always be someone that would eventually come and help a young student who did speak English or mm. somebody who didn't speak English but would still try to help you know, somehow or would offer to, to assist in, in what way. Um, I had one guy at some point, a very nice Chinese guy. We went to a place together. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Chinese. But we would communicate with Google with uh, Google Translate with my VPN. Yes, and we sort of became we became friends through Google Translate, and we managed to talk only by typing and translating. Mm. And then he he said, "If you come to my city, which is Chengdu, yeah. Chengdu, he said you can uh, message me." So I said, "Okay." And then after visiting the Tibetan part, I went to Chengdu. Yeah. And then believe it or not, the guy invited me gave me his apartment and went to stay with his girlfriend. And for three, four days, it might've been four days, I think. He just drove me around to see the pandas. They have a, a panda yeah. reserve in, in Chengdu. Um, he just, he basically gave me like a private tour That's of the amazing. city for four days. Like VIP treatment. And I remember that time I was so ashamed because it was too much. I would always offer to pay. Like this time, I remember specifically always offering to pay for restaurants because it was just too much. Yeah. Like he would still refuse. He was like treating me like, like I was a king or something. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's China. And people don't necessarily think that this will happen in that country. But I found that uh, if you're willing to, to talk to the Chinese and initiate contact, mm-hmm. even with a phone translator, they'll, they'll be friendly. Yeah, and, uh, you can't blame people, I suppose. But yeah, it annoys me people don't have that sort of openness about China because I see so much stuff on online about people who don't like it. I'm like, you know, you've never been there. And you probably don't even know any Chinese people. Like, especially in Vancouver, we've got quite a big Chinese community here. And yeah. I got a friend at work who's Chinese. He's from Beijing, and I was just curious about. I was asking questions, and he's, he's like willing to answer, right? So I'm not. I was going to say his name, but I was like, oh, do for example. So if people are listening in China. You know, websites are blocked, so Google you can't go on. Facebook, I don't think is a thing there. There's certain sites on the internet you can't access, so they have their own version. But I was saying to my mate, I said, oh, but do you go on like Instagram or do you go on Facebook there? He goes, yeah, like a lot of the younger population have VPNs as well. Like they they can see what the outside world is saying, if you like. It's not like they're closed right. off. And as I always say, like people need to differentiate the politics from the people. Like yeah. the Chinese government is doing its thing. The local people are doing their own business, their own thing. You, people may dislike the government for X, Y, Z reason, but again, people should not put everything into into one bag. You know, the, the normal inhabitants are, you know, they're, they're they're not the government. So I think yeah. I think a lot of people have problems with the government of China. Yeah, but they don't get that. You know, the inhabitants are are doing their own thing. Um, it's like one point three yeah, billion would, people, right? So like you can't yeah. you can't just judge that mass population on a few politicians yeah the few politicians yeah, are a bit, a bit people, grim people, but yeah, yeah or they'll complain about the behavior of chinese uh travelers for example who do go to europe and like sometimes yes they will like be rude be our mm. uh, spit and things like that but and like yes in china like you'll see a lot of spitting or you'll see a yeah. lot of people that are fighting in queues to get on trains I, i'm traveling to to get out of my comfort zone and to see different things 
And yes, the first few times it did bother me, like getting on the train and there's no proper queue and everybody's sort of cutting in the line and fighting. Mm. But at the same time, you, you kind of see it as a fun game. You're like, okay, I'll be on the train anyways. My seat is reserved. Yeah. Okay, whatever. That's how they do it here. There's this bit, bit of chaos of fighting to get in line. Okay, fine. Like I'll just take it as a challenge, as a as a, as a game. <laughs> and and then when I, once I'm on the train, people are like sharing their food with me. And I remember one lady. <laughs> yeah. Like 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 every train, like people they have to have biscuits or some noodles or whatever they have. They would share and be generous. So. Yeah, in, in the end, uh, it was a positive experience. It's almost like, I don't know how to describe this, it sounds like there's that initial like bit of a fight to get on the train and then they instantly forget it and they just start sharing food. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, quite a weird, it's quite a weird thing to analyze because like, I'd, I'd imagine maybe Western countries, for example, like that person would not forget that and would have a bit of a vendetta for like the rest of the train ride. But yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah like that, that specific train, like I remember like guys pushing me, but everybody's pushing each other. It's not yeah. just... It's just this sort of mad crowd. And by the way, if you want to know where that comes from, I've heard from people that it's because of the Cultural Revolution during the, was it the 60s? I can't remember exactly when, but when, when Mao was in power and there was this yeah. tough economic time, a lot of people were starving and it was a really difficult time and people would push each other to get food or push each other to, to do this and that. It was a rough time for China mm. and a lot of habits of politeness were lost. That's what I've heard. I've heard that Okay. These difficult uh, years, you know, made people more, um, yeah, they, they just lost their manners. They became more aggressive and, you know, they, they kept that mentality of, okay, I have to fight to get on the train. I have to fight to, to get on the grocery line. Whereas <laughs> if you go to Taiwan, for example, Taiwan, which has a lot, is basically a, a sister of China. They have Chinese culture, but they did not go through that communist yes. cultural revolution. Yeah. They don't do that. Everybody's super polite. And they, they follow the line and the queue and everything. So it's I think it's specific to the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, because Taiwan, interestingly, the people in Taiwan were the ones who kind of uh, escaped that revolution, right? And sort of hopped over the water to Taiwan. So it kind of That's makes right. sense that they're kind of closed off a little bit and kept that culture. Yeah. And you see it, um, uh, I don't know if we, we can touch on Taiwan now or, or later, but in Taiwan, you'll see that unlike China, which has had the Cultural Revolution, they still have they, they still have preserved their uh, Taoist temples. Do you say Taoist or Taoist? I say Taoist. Yeah. Taoist. Yeah. Yeah. The Taoist temples, beautiful temples. Of course, they they have Buddhist temples as well. But I remember the Taoist temples being really nice. Like you get in, there's like a sculpture of a tiger and different. Um, there's different fruits that people leave, and it's super colorful. And that was that was interesting to see that. Yeah, in Taiwan, almost everywhere you'll go if mm. you walk. A kilometer you'll see a taoist temple and it's a beautiful one and in china you won't see that and i've heard it's because a lot of these temples were demolished during the cultural revolution oh, yeah. Uh, yeah 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 I'll, I'll say one last thing then about china and then we'll move on to yeah. taiwan because yeah. talking about size when yeah. i was in china I, I, I was in chengdu and because you're talking about like distance and size i wanted to go from chengdu to kashgar i don't know if you can see on the map where is kashgar k-a-s-h-g-a-r so from yeah. Chengdu to Kashgar, which is super far away. And of course, you can't cross through Tibet because yeah, yeah, I can't course. go through Tibet. Yeah. The train ride was 52 hours. <laughs> right. So, so you have to sleep for two days on the train. And I think it ended up being a bit longer as well because uh, the train was delayed. So it was like two and a half days of just nonstop. You're, you're, you're on that little train. You're on that long train <laughs> in that little bed. And, you know, no internet, nothing to do. Just... Chilling, sleeping, 
saying hello to your neighbors. And that's just how massive China is, you know. <laughs> and did you make it as well to Kashgar? Yeah, I made I made it there. Um, it's in the province called Xinjiang, and yeah. it's made the news recently, as you probably know. With the, yeah. there's a Muslim population there, and that was again crazy, because I just spent time with the Tibetans before Chengdu. Then yeah. I was in Chengdu, which has more of a mainstream Chinese culture. With my uh, host, which I told you about, who yeah. gave me like a private tour for four days. So I had just experienced Tibetan culture. Then I experienced sort of mainstream Han Chinese culture with my host in Chengdu, and then I get off Kashgar. And I felt like I was in a movie because it was the first time in my life that you, you're in the same country and you go from one place to the next, and you feel like you've teleported yourself.、Mm. It was the Middle East. People had caps.、Uh, everything was written with Arabic script. Wow.、Uh, they had also Chinese script, like bilingual signs, but you know they they, they wrote in Uyghur.、Um, yeah. People ate kebabs and mutton, and the food was different. And I was pretty much in Central Asia. The, the the landscape itself was was a, a desert and hot and arid, and I was thinking, wow, I'm in the same country, it's still China, same visa. I, I felt like I'd been to three countries into one. First yeah. Tibet, yeah, with like snow and mountains, then Chengdu, sort of mainstream Han food and culture, and then Kashgar, and Kashgar was insane at that time.、Um, it was at the time when they had started to. Uh, step up the the control of the the region and put、mm-hmm. people into concentration camps.、Yeah. There was military everywhere on the streets.、Mm. Uh, I, I felt like I was. You, you've seen those World War Two movies of like occupied France in 1942 during、yeah. World War Two, like the Germans everywhere. That's how I felt in in Kashgar. <laughs> I felt like they were. It was it was like occupied France during World War Two. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Checkpoints yeah. everywhere. You had to show your ID to even. Get on a bus or a metro. That's crazy. And,、uh, yeah, in your own country. Even, yeah.、Mm. Have you spoken to or heard of anybody else who's been to Xinjiang? To that I haven't.、Region? No, I haven't. It's mental. Like there's cameras everywhere. Like there's because in Kashgar, the majority of people are Uyghurs, and there's a tiny Han minority. Yeah. And the Han are kind of paranoid that something will happen—a terrorist attack. Because I think sometimes there are、uh, attacks, or、mm. there, there have been there, there have been attacks in the past. But it's just paranoia. Like, even to get into my hostel, there was a metal detector just to get into the hostel. Like, I've never had that before. Go, you're、wow. going to a hostel. You need to go through air, like airport security to just go to the hostel. <laughs> and then I take your bag. And so it was. It was a bit intense, and I did feel a bit bad for the local population because、mm-hmm. a lot of cops were closed, and、uh, you could you could definitely feel that、uh, they were not going through a really really fun time. Did you manage to maybe chat to a local, or was that not? Not possible. No, unfortunately, no. I、um, I I couldn't because they didn't speak English. That's the first thing、mm. the the language problem. But I was lucky enough to meet an American who had been living there for I think a few years. Who was he had like a ten year Chinese visa, so he could stay in China for a very long time. And I think he was、yeah. teaching English online and doing translation work. And he just loved the place. And he he was really into culture, so he had actually learned Uyghur. Oh, he could speak it,、nice. yeah. And he just told me everything from an insider's perspective. So I spent a few days with him. Okay. And、yeah. in, in three days, because he'd been living there for for a very long time, he just gave me all the insider's information of how people were unfortunately disappearing、uh, and、yeah. being sent to camp. Businesses were were closed. Even the old city, I think they were destroying it. And anyways, it's it's very political and、uh, it's it's a heavy topic. But I I still liked it because I felt like I was in the Middle East. 
I felt like, okay, yeah, this is where China and this is where Central Asia begins. That whole region, like I said before, the Tibet there, it just feels like another, it is like another couple of countries, isn't it? If you look at the yeah. map, just by, by even, even the infrastructure, if you look at China on the east side, like really built up, loads of roads. As far as you go west, it just gets more remote and these different autonomous regions, yeah, it just feels like it, they are a couple of different countries, really. That, that's right. And the reason the reason I wanted to go at that time is because I thought, you know, who knows, maybe in the future it'll be like Tibet, where you can only go with a permit and a guide. So I thought, I want to go uh, now yeah. while it's yeah. possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was it was just super interesting because I'm, I'm kind of touching on Central Asia, which is right uh, across it. But when I did go to Central Asia, to the Stan countries, I, especially in Kyrgyzstan and, and uh, even Kazakhstan, I feel like Western China had preserved more of the authentic Central Asian uh, culture mm. than these other countries who had been part of the Soviet Union. And they had really been uh-huh. Russianized. And yeah. You could feel the Russian influence a lot. Yeah. Whereas in Kashgar, like uh, you know, people had the traditional clothes and they still had the the little cap on their mm. head. Uh, so and yeah, it was just a really nice place. I do recommend people to go and visit if they can. Yeah, and one last question about it. I don't know if your American friend told you about this. Like when he said that people just disappear. Is everyone like are they a target? Like is no one safe? Or like how do they even choose who's next? Like does he know why or how that happens? What I've heard from him. Yeah, at the time, was that if they suspected you of being a nationalist in any way, so if you were going to the mosque more often than others, because of course they, they, they keep track of everything with their security cameras and with their ID mm. checks, like every time you go somewhere, you have to swipe your ID. So if people went to the mosque too often, or if they were found with certain books that were too nationalist, or if they just seemed to fit a certain profile and they had mm. any suspicion, they would, they would send them to the re-education camp. So, so what he was saying is that, but I think what he said as well is that they were planning to eventually just do it to everybody. Yeah. So their goal was to essentially take away their identity to make them better Chinese citizens because okay. they, they felt like uh, they had to get into a mold. Uh, so I think everybody, from what he said, everybody was eventually going to be sent to the camp, at least for some time yeah. to read communist literature and be made into a good Chinese citizen. I don't think that's going to work. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's happening now because I know there's been a lot of uh, uproar internationally about the situation. Oh yeah, yeah. It, like, but it's it's weird because in 2018 nobody was talking about it. So again, that's the beauty of travel, and mm. I, I feel very blessed. I feel like when you're traveling and you're going to these places, you almost get the news before it comes out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So like, I remember like coming back in 2018 to my family and telling them about that and like what I had seen and how insane it was. And they were looking at me like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, <laughs> like, like it's, it started like an alien world, like the yeah. security in Canada. The, the press started to talk about it more in 2019. Yeah. And then my family was talking about it. And I said, yeah, I've been telling you about this place for, uh, for months and months. And <laughs> I, I was there and everything. Okay. So yeah, you got an entire view of the, of the place. Okay. And um, before quickly we moved to Taiwan, any sort of things that you have seen in China that people must go and check out that you saw? Okay. So um i love chinese food i'm, I'm biased but I've, I've been to i think 33 countries and chinese yeah. food is number one and it, yeah. and also it has nothing to do with the chinese food that people eat uh, abroad so even if you've yeah, been yeah. To china, people have been to chinese restaurants and they didn't like it wait until you go to china their spices are amazing i, I have a salty tooth like I, i'm not into sweets so much but i like salty things mm. um like meat and and all that stuff 
and the and noodles and the way they cook it, it's great. So Chinese food uh, has to be tried if you if people go there. You can even eat like uh, duck feet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you call it, like the the feet of chicken and crazy Fine. things. Okay, yeah. Um, in terms of sites, definitely the Tibetan part that I spoke about. Yeah. I think people should go there and check it out if you want to see some authentic Tibetan culture. Definitely go there. That was a highlight of my trip. I quite like the region I spoke to you about, the, the, the Western region, Xinjiang, because yeah. uh, it, it feels different. The Tibetan area. I liked a place uh, a place near Yangshuo, uh, Y A N G. S-H-U-O. There's beautiful mountains there. You can do really nice hikes. Mm, uh, it's okay. called Yangchuo. And it's, yeah. it's in the southeast of the country, not far from Hong Kong. Beautiful. Honestly, China is one of those countries where you can go almost anywhere and you'll find something interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit like America. but It's like the America of Asia. You've got canyons. You've got every type of landscape. They've got desert, like the desert of Gobi. Yeah. Yeah. They've got mountains. They've got you know, plain areas, everything. Um, and I think one thing, if people do go to China, I would advise them to do like I did when I went to Weihai, go to some random place that nobody has ever heard of. Just go there for two or three days and you'll have a funny interaction or something funny will happen. That's uh, what I would do. Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at the map now. Like I would probably go to a place I've never heard of called Giang, G-U-I-Y-A-N-G. No idea what's there. And it looks fairly big, but like you can get there pretty easy by the looks of it. And yeah, just go and see what happens. <laughs> and just walk around and like, oh yeah, I forgot to say that because I so many things that happened in China. When I was in a city called Guilin, yeah, I, was I see walking that. The city yeah. And I'm 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 I'm, fair, I'm like six six foot four, so I'm quite tall. And yeah, people would sometimes I'm not kidding, they would come up to me randomly and like measure themselves up because they I guess they hadn't seen a tall foreigner like me yeah. in a while or something. And the, like random Chinese workers, I'm just walking on the sidewalk. They come, they grab me, and they measure me like I'm a ladder, and they're trying to see where does their height reach on me. And it was just <laughs> so funny because you, you, you won't have that anywhere else. But, you know, like it, it's just a, a funny experience. If you want to feel like an alien, go to China. <laughs> there you go. There's a quote to end it. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, I, I think we, we I need to briefly touch on the, on the Great Wall because everybody has oh, of heard of it. Yeah. Like, the Great Wall, so quick, I'm going to make it quick. So I'm in Beijing, I'm walking, and I'm thinking, okay, how can I see the Great Wall? Mm. I need to think about it. It's, it's outside of the city. How do I get there? At the time, I, was, I, I didn't hitchhike, so I had to find a bus or something. Mm-hmm. And as I'm walking around Beijing, you know, around the markets, I hear two people speaking English at a bus stop. And I turn around, and it's a Chinese-looking person speaking to his mom in English. And I think mm-hmm. he had seen me, and yeah. he wanted to speak English to get my attention. So I just walk up to him and I politely ask him something or a direction, or I can't remember what it was, but I just engage a conversation. And long story short, this guy was a Chinese American. Uh, you know, he was my age, but his mom, of course, was older and he had, she had migrated to the States. So he spoke yeah. fluent English mm-hmm. and uh, we start speaking and he's like, Oh, you know what? Uh, are you, are you here by yourself? I'm like, yes. He's like, Oh, great. We're actually going to the great wall tomorrow with my mom and her friend. Um, you know, do you want to join us? And I'm like, wow, really? That I was actually planning to go and I was looking for a way. Great, I'll, I'll go. Mm-hmm. And it turns out this guy, his mom was, I think, a friend of some VIP people. I, I still don't know to this day who his mom was. Right. But she was well-connected. And we went to the best part of the Great Wall. There's different parts of the Great Wall. 
And yeah. that was the most remote, less touristy. We had the whole wall for ourselves. Like we saw, I think, five tourists on the whole wall where we, oh, wow. we, hiked, for, we hiked for hours. And you have the whole wall to yourself. You feel like you're an old soldier, like patrolling as a, as a soldier on the wall. And you're just hiking, beautiful landscape. And because she was well connected, I got to see her for free. I didn't even have to pay for the entrance because I think that the friend of her mom, of yeah. his mom, was the guy that was running the place. <laughs> yeah. So I got, <laughs> like, I felt super lucky. I got to see the Great Wall at a, at a very nice location that, that was the least touristy, most raw and remote part with, with a nice hike and didn't even get to, didn't have to pay for the entrance fee. So I was very <laughs> lucky on my own. That's incredible because you, you would imagine a lot of people will be listening to this going, oh, it's going to be filled with tourists. But that's yeah, pretty lucky you I got to see it without it. Because I think there's six or seven um, spots where you can see the Great Wall that are different because it's so huge. There's yeah. six or seven. There's one called Badaling, and that's where everybody goes to, and a crammed one where you're walking and everybody's there, and you know, it's it's super touristy. Mm. And the one that I that I went to, I don't remember the name because it's a Chinese name, but I do remember on the map that it's the farthest away from Beijing, most remote. It was a, it was a highlight of my of my trip because. You know, you're, you're walking there and you can just imagine being a soldier guarding the wall mm. hundreds of years ago. And yeah, as a lover, as a lover of history, it really felt nice. Oh, so if people do go to China, check out the Great Wall, but try to go to a spot that is far away from Beijing. Okay, got it. Okay. And then we moved to Taiwan. So is that a similar experience or quite different to mainland China? Very interesting. So in terms of the food, it's somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. But in Taiwan, people spoke really uh english really well even better than korea and japan that was a, a shock to me okay almost everybody in taiwan speaks english to some level yeah very well educated um of course no vpn very again very hospitable which was surprising because i had been to south korea and, and japan and it was fine but taiwan taiwan would be one of my favorite east asian countries nice people yeah. Not touristy. People go to Thailand and Vietnam. They don't really go to Taiwan. People don't really think oh, I'm going to go to Taiwan on a vacation. Mm. But I think it's getting more popular now, but it used to be a bit hidden. People didn't really yes. think of it as, a, as an interesting place to go to. As a result, people are nice. Um, I remember what, one time I was at a hostel and there's a couple, a man and a girl, and, and they invited me on a bike ride with them. Mm -hmm. And then we rode. It was really nice. We had lunch together. And then they said, okay, if you go to our city, which is on the western coast, I can't remember the name of the city, it might have been Tainan or something like that. Yeah, Tainan. They said, yeah. yeah, they said, come and um, meet us there. Yeah. And then what happened when I went there? They invited me in again. So <laughs> what I, it, it's just shocking because people think you can get that hospitality only in a Muslim country. But it seems like at least China and Taiwan, and especially Taiwan, that the people are very, very happy to meet foreigners and very hospitable. And yeah. they're not Muslim, of course. It's a, it has nothing to do with religion. So I'm not sure what it is, but Taiwanese are very nice. I work with quite a few Taiwanese and they are super nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but, they, they love their country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I do wonder, do you, think it's, do you think it's because maybe in hindsight, it's also because they're so desperate to, you know, they, they want people to know about Taiwan and know, some of them, of course, want to be their own country and things like that. So maybe they're, they're motivated to give a good impression of their country to outsiders. And I think they want to separate it from China. I think they want to tell people that this is their own place. Yeah, I think you're right. Because yeah. 
And if you if you read yeah. about China and what the politicians think about Taiwan, is they want it part of the mainland, right? They want a part of it as proper China. But I think Taiwan's got quite a decent sized military, so I don't think there's always there's always rumours, isn't there, about China thinking about invading and stuff like that. But I think Taiwan would probably give it a good go back. But hopefully, it won't happen. Yeah. And, and I did a complete tour of the island because it's rather small, so you can do the whole tour of it. And um, I started, of course, in uh, what is it, Taipei, yeah, the capital. Taipei. Yeah. And I went south. I'm looking at the map now. So I went south, and I really like the east coast of Taiwan. The west is very industrialized and very developed. Most yeah, of the population it. in the west. Mm. The east coast, very calm, like Hualien, H-U-A-L-I-E-N. Very peaceful, very nice area. You can go on a bike ride through, uh, you know, rice fields. Um, it has some nice mountains. It has a beach, some hot springs as well. If you want to oh, take a, a bath. Uh, and I was hitchhiking and people, you know, they, they were um, often, uh, again, inviting me and things like that. So, yeah, I really, the east is quite calm, quite relaxed. Like that coastal road that hugs yeah. the coast. It looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah, the coastal road is road eleven is really really fun. Yeah. Even road nine, which is inland, there's like between Hualien and um, Taitung, there's this other inland road, and mm-hmm. that's also quite nice because it goes through a valley between two mountain chain, chains, and oh, wow. you know, good food. Taiwan is a little bit more expensive than mainland China, so mm-hmm. from a budget perspective, I, I would buy, for example, the same dumplings I would buy in China for maybe I don't know twenty percent more expensive. Yeah. But it was still much cheaper than Korea or Japan, so it was still all right. But yeah, mainland China, in terms of budget, is still very good. Mm-hmm. Taiwan, definitely a bit more developed, more expensive, but you can still find you know hostels that are affordable yeah. if you're on a budget. I went to the southernmost point, the last tip of of, of Taiwan, and then went up west. And in the west, you know, it's more industrialized, like I said. So yeah, more more, cities. more developed. But but at the same time, also also very fun. A lot of activity, nightlife. If people want to go out, and the Taiwanese will be, you know, looking to uh, <laughs> meet meet you and uh, show you around. So it's really fun. Also, would you? Is there different visa processes for China and Taiwan? Are they separate? It's a very interesting. Actually, Taiwan has a free visa on arrival for everybody. Uh, so okay, I mean, right. For pardon. Yeah. So as as a foreigner, if you don't like visa procedures. You can just go to Taiwan if you're yeah. British, American, Canadian, et cetera, and they just give it at the airport. Whereas China, much more tricky. You have to get some hotel reservations, which you then need to cancel. You need to show proof of onward uh, travel. So you have to have, you know, airplane tickets and yeah. stuff like that. Got it. But what, what, the, the good thing about the Chinese visa is if you're American or Canadian and maybe some other nationalities, you can get a 10-year, 60-day multi-entry. So I had that one. And that's really nice because okay. the American guy that I told you about, he also yeah. had this. So you can basically stay in China like 59 days or even 60, get out, go to Mongolia or any other country for a day, come back and do the same thing. And it's strange, but as long as you never stay more than 60 days, yeah, you can theoretically stay for 10 years and just get out every 60 days. It's I don't know why they did that visa. It's, it, wow, that's crazy. It's yeah. like a loophole. Yeah, it's, it's a strange loophole, but it's amazing. That's a good, good tip, that. Yeah, love that. And for Taiwan, any any highlights that you saw? Any things that grabbed your attention? Really, the Taoist temples. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of temples, and uh, I th- I think that's the only country where I saw Taoist temples. Because in Japan, you'll have like Shinto temples. In um, in other countries, you might have, uh, of course, Buddhist 
temples, but the Taoist ones were really colorful. They have all these cultures inside and it's just, and they're just everywhere. Mm. Like you go to any town, sometimes you'd be on the beach, you walk on the beach and then there's this random temple there and there's nobody around. And the temple is well decorated, beautiful. And yeah, I, I really fell in love with the, with the Taoist temples. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier about people who don't seem to go there, it's definitely on my radar. Like I, unfortunately right now, just from my friends here who are Taiwanese, they're saying that the COVID stuff is pretty tough. Like you have to quarantine for 10 days, I think, then then quarantine at home for another five. So you, you do have to adhere to the COVID restrictions right now. But I think once that's over, I'm 100% getting there because I, I would love to see that little island, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and do do a tour of it so you get a full uh, full view. Because I think a lot of people that just go to like Taipei, Taipei. And maybe, yeah. Oh, you, oh, sorry, you talked about Taiwan, and I forgot. You see, there's so many things I forgot to mention. You said one of my nicest experiences experience there. I was hitchhiking at some point um, near uh, a bit around near Yilan. You see Yilan on the yes. map, uh, right yeah. after Taiwan. Yeah, and I was dehydrated like pretty badly. That's one of the few times in my life where I was very badly dehydrated mm-hmm. and the driver was getting nervous for me. He's like, man, you, you, you really seem to be, I was dizzy and I thought I was going to pass out. So I said, okay, just please like, just drop me anywhere where I can find water. Cause I'm yeah. really not feeling well. And he says, okay, he's just pulls over at a random place. I don't know where that is at all. And he, he drops me in the middle of, uh, of a place. I don't know where that is. I don't even look at what, what it is. And I'm like, thank you so much. And I see a building. I go in the building and I, I say, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very dehydrated. Do you guys have any water by any chance? And they point me to a place. They give me water. I drink. Oh, feels better. Feels better. Feels good. I get hydrated. And then I look around. Of course, the guy had, had gone. Like he had just dropped yeah. me. Yeah. And by complete coincidence, I had been dropped off. I, I speak to the guys and it turns out I'm at the foothill of a huge, very high, very, very high mountain. Okay. And there's a Buddhist temple on top and the people that are speaking to me work for the temple and they're the monks. And they say, hey, do you know there's actually a temple on top of this mountain all the way up? And there's a road that goes there. And we've got a car. We're about to go up. Do you want to come with us? <laughs> and I'm like, what? How cool is this? I didn't even know that this place exists. I don't know. I, I just, <laughs> dehydrated i was just in need of water so i'm like yeah sure of course i'll come with you i go up with them it's this super and you have to understand this isn't near uh yilan so it's right by the ocean the pacific ocean so once you reach the top of the mountain there's this beautiful buddhist temple which is authentic and real there's no tourists no like you have to pay to come it's just monks uh, meditating golden statues of buddhas everywhere like the most authentic real buddhist temple you can think of that mm. it, it's not commercial nothing and there's the, these monks uh, all around and they speak good english and they speak to me and they say hey oh wow you're a visitor and of course no white person has ever been there or, or knows about this place because i only discovered it like kind of randomly because of my dehydration so they're happy <laughs> to see me they show me around oh come and see look at this this is our room this is our dining hall this is where we stay they give me a full tour and it's beautiful and we can see the ocean and you can see the waves of the Pacific as you're sitting on the mountaintop. On the one on one side, there's a jungle, green, lush colors. Mm-hmm. Other side, there's the ocean. You can just imagine like the sort of heavenly yeah, landscape. Yeah. That and then um, they say, hey, do you want to stay here tonight? Uh, uh, for free, just to stay here for the night in our in temple. And I hadn't asked or anything. I said, really? You, you think it's possible? They said, yeah, let me ask the 
the, the boss. I think we can ask him, we can stay here. She asks, she was a female monk. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the person says yes. So I get to eat with them. They're very deliciously cooked vegetarian food. And, oh, you know, it's dream. really good tofu with uh, very nice, um, like omelets and spinach and, and uh, all these different uh, types of, of food that, are, you know, it tastes amazing. Basically, I got to have a, a, a like free t- Buddhist temple stay that's super authentic, super genuine. Got to meditate with them and be, I think it was one or two nights in total that I stayed in, in this temple mm. by complete coincidence, just because of the dehydration and, and because I was about to faint. <laughs> this, that dehydration ended up causing me to have a great experience with these with these monks and, and their temple and you can just imagine the sunset you know you're looking at the oh. ocean the whole horizon is blue you've got yeah. the jungle in the back and you see the sun setting on the mighty pacific while you're with monks and there's golden statues of buddhas around you it was fantastic and i would say that was probably the number one highlight of my trip there and it was completely unplanned and i remember thinking that i think that's the first time in my life yeah, where I really I understood the concept of serendipity. That was uh, okay. that was a turning point. That that's yeah. when I realized, you know, one thing leads to another. You know, have trust in the universe. You know, because if I hadn't been dehydrated, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I would have of been course. Happy, but maybe yeah, I would have yeah. missed out on that. So you just don't know what what will happen. And one day, when I had to go down from the, the monastery, the the temple, you need to get a car. So the one of the monks drove because it's like a twenty minute ride. It's very mm. high. So the guy drove me down to the coastal highway. I, I said, okay, I'm going to give you some money because, you know, you, come on, you you drove me all the way like a taxi. Yeah. I mean, here's some, here's some cash. He wouldn't have it. He refused my cash. Mental. And, Crazy. And it's mental. Yeah. Because again, it's not one of those Middle Eastern cultures where you can think, okay, it's purely because of Islam. No, no, no. This is a Taiwanese person who refused my my cash after giving me a 15, 20 minute ride down a mountain to drop me off. So yeah, that was a great, great place. So if any, anybody or yourself, if you go to Taiwan and you're in the Yilan region, mm. you might be able to ask around and maybe somebody will know where is that temple. And yeah, because you might be able to at least have a look. There's two parts of me, right? There's, there's one part that want to know where it is because it sounds amazing. And then the other part that doesn't really want to know where it is, because I think these are the type of places that once someone writes about it or blogs about it or even podcasts about it, then people just start going there, right? And it kind of loses its beauty. So that is true. I, I would go to Yilan myself and just try and find it. I wouldn't even be like probably posting anywhere that I've, if I, if I go there, that this is where it is. I wouldn't even say that. Like I'd, I'd keep it a bit, bit more personal because that just sounds too, almost too good to be true, right? What you experienced, so. Yeah, that's, so what, that's what I think. I, I see what you're saying. What you're basically saying is, you almost feel like just by asking where that would be or trying to find it, you you, you you're almost afraid of ruining yeah. the experience for the next one that would go right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's places yeah. that can happen too where you post, "Oh, this is amazing," and that's fine. People can go there and check it out. But there's some places that I would just wouldn't even podcast about or even even social media about because I like, no, that needs to be like, maybe it's kept a bit, bit more personal. And and while we're on this, I think this is a good time to briefly address something uh, yeah. that I, I actually want to get your advice on or your insight. A lot of people tell me, you know, Frank, Francois, you've got to start a YouTube channel. You've got to do this. You've got to be on social media. You've got to share mm-hmm. uh, things. I think we even, we were talking about this uh, through chat a while ago. And a lot of people like almost every week now, somebody will ask me. Yeah. Uh, why are you not a YouTuber? Why don't you have an Instagram? And I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted, just like you said. Because on the one hand, there's a part of me that feels like, 
that would be great to share my experiences. I could potentially even make a bit of money if I become popular enough and I have a, mm. a YouTube channel that has some subscribers. There's, there's a way to monetize it. Yeah. And uh, I, I might become a small YouTube celebrity or who, who knows <laughs> what the potential is. So a part of me wants to go down that route to try it out and you know, see what happens. But another part of me, just like you said with that temple, is afraid that by displaying my, my travel life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin these places because you just need one person, one person to write about that temple yep. and, and say where it is. And then the next guy goes there, writes about the next guys. And then not long after, there's hordes of tourists trying to go. And then mm -hmm. the monks, they want to commercialize it because now you're not just one guy dehydrated coming there uh, <laughs> randomly. But they think, okay, we're going to charge you 10 bucks a night for this. And then we're going to do this and this. And then, you know, so what, what's your take on this? Um, That's do a you, great question. Yeah. I'll tell you another quick story, a bit like yours. I had someone come on as a guest. Uh, she's a travel writer called Emma Thompson. And she said that she lived in Fiji for three months and worked as like a bit of a diver, helping out the coral reef. And she said no one would stay in there that was westernized. It was just locals. Um, but there was one local who wanted help to help kind of help this like coral reef. And I asked her, oh, so where's that island? She goes, no, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because i it's my favorite place and i don't want people to go there and ruin it so i'm gonna keep it to myself <laughs> and like oh. I, totally, I totally get it it's the same as your situation with this uh temple right um but you don't know that, that yeah. maybe even where this is that's like that's easier for you but she knows where this place is in fiji right and she's like nope yeah. i'm not gonna put but what was special about the coral reef beach it was there was a... she, she had the opportunity to go and sort of volunteer for three months to kind of put netting down above the coral to stop it being I guess kind of like ruined by okay. I don't know if it's by boats or by like predators in the area I'm not really sure she said that no one else was there that was westernized it's just Fijians yeah, authentic but also idyllic you know like that classic like South Pacific islands warm water beaches are incredible like no one's there like it's pretty authentic um, but she wouldn't tell me where right. it is <laughs> my other part of it is it's hard isn't it because when I speak to someone like you who's not on social media it's really quite refreshing to see and it's a bit out there these days where you've got this guy, Frank, who's like hitchhiking around these countries. And we can only imagine what it's like because you're telling us we can't actually go and see what it's like because you don't um, record out there, which has got its own beauty. Right. But then there's the other side, yeah. like you said, that you could even potentially after these trips long term, if you do set up something that might give you an opportunity later on to maybe work within this like creative field or this. I don't know, that like travel aspect where you've had such unique experiences that I think someone will take you up on. Maybe you become a podcaster or you become a YouTuber. I think there is potential to be doing that as a living, as a job. So it's, it's quite tough. Yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is that on the one hand, there's there would be potential for me if I put in the work to eventually maybe make money from that, like you said, either through podcast or, or like make videos daily. But at the same time, my fear is that if I start, okay, let me put it this way. Yeah. This is an interesting philosophical question. I think it's, it's good to dwell on it. So part of me feels like if I start sharing it, not just with stories like I'm doing now, but through Instagram, through social media and, mm. and the typical sort of social media influencer route, the motive of why I'm, I'm traveling will change. Yes. It won't just be for, okay, I want to experience Taiwan. I just want to see what it's like. I want to have a great adventure because the motive right now for me, is I want adventures. I want to get experiences and insights. But once you become a social media influencer, your motive becomes, I want to grow my platform. I want to have more followers. 
potentially more sponsors, more money coming in, as well as, uh, you know, you want to make a living out of it. I, I don't know how, but I just have that feeling that it will sort of corrupt my, my travels and even maybe spoil them. Because yeah. I won't allow myself to be, for example, as spontaneous. Because yeah. I always be thinking, okay, I need to get the next story. I need to do this. Whereas when I was dehydrated and I just had to, <laughs> okay, this opportunity comes, you can set the tempo. Okay, boom. But if I was planning to film a YouTube video with another Taiwanese YouTuber at that location and you got to get there in, in that amount of time and this and that, I don't know. Yeah, I'm still thinking man. about it. Yeah, it's yeah. conflicting. And also don't forget to add as well, let's say you're traveling around as normal right now. If you're going to do a YouTube channel or social media or something or podcast, it's going to add more time for you not to travel, right? So you're going to have to spend maybe one to two hours a day or every two days editing, yeah. doing recording, editing, promoting, yeah. get it out there, right? So it's going to take time away from travel. So you need to factor that in as well. And sometimes you might need internet, whereas some of the places that you're going to probably don't have that, right? So, you know, in, in the depths of Pakistan or Afghanistan, I don't think they're going to have great internet. So um, <laughs> even in the Libya here, like you saw, right? It was. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's, it's tough, so, man. It's tough. Yeah, I think. There's different platforms, maybe each have their own merits, like podcasting, for example, if you've just done audio, that's that's still good because you can just kind of talk on the go. Like You, do, you don't need too much to carry. Um, you just need a hosting platform and you don't even yeah. have to promote it on social media. You can just release a podcast and you know, they say you do have to have social media, but there's ways to do it without it. So that's a more authentic where it's just audio. You, you're talking into the microphone. You, you might even get to maybe interview someone local. That's quite cool. Um, but yeah. YouTube and, yeah, and, and social media is is a bit more unauthentic. You know, you, you're taking a photo maybe for the sake of it a bit more like yeah. that. I just feel like it becomes a, I mean, it is a popularity contest at the end of the day and yeah, it's a competition yeah. contest. And I think a part of me fears that if I, okay, let's say I open up an Instagram and then I start posting it, for example, these Taiwan pictures, okay, the temple and this and the, the, the Taoist temples and all that. And to me, it's beautiful. To me, it's nice. To me, it's amazing. But I feel like, the value will now be determined by the amount of likes it gets or the amount yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if people just give, okay, let's say 200 likes to the picture of a nice Taoist temple that I find fascinating, but then mm -hmm. another guy posts something that I find like normal, but he gets a thousand likes. I'll feel like, oh, okay, my thing is less valuable and this and that, you know, we're humans at the end of the day, we compare ourselves, ourselves yeah. with each other. And I feel like it, it takes away the power from me and it gives it to the crowd. And now mm -hmm. they are the ones who are going to judge, okay, this traveler is better than this one and this one. Whereas if I just keep it to myself, like I'm the only judge who can uh, say, okay, this experience is great or this one is bad. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And I asked my own question, why am I doing a podcast, right? The main reason, and this is generally the main reason is I see in our lives in Canada, in UK, so many people who say to me, I'd love to travel or they're scared or they don't know how to. And it's like, I'm trying to encourage these people that you, know, you need to get one shot at life, right? And you can learn so much from doing hitchhiking around Taiwan or going into, I don't know, Japan, whatever, that you might learn something about yourself as well as meeting other cultures. I think that can only benefit you as a human being. So I'm trying to kind of make people a bit more worldly, if you like, not, not as insular into their own little community where they only watch the news and they get the news from Facebook and it, that's their opinion on one country. Right? I'm trying to get away from that. I'm trying to get people out there to experience different cultures and different people. That's the reason I do right. the travel podcast. You're right. It's, it's, it's for, uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a good motive. It's actually to educate people and uh, open their horizon to, uh, to the world. Like you said, a lot of people, maybe they're just living their day-to-day -day life in a small town in Alberta and 
you know, all they think of China is okay, communism and dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. And then they might they might hear your podcast and they hear my story of this guy who gave me a four day private tour of the city, <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, I never thought the Chinese could do this. And I, I mean, if anything, I hope that from the, these podcasts, you know, some people will uh, change their perspective. Even if it's just one person that changes their perspective on yeah. one country, that will be worth it. Absolutely, that, that, that's the sort of the point they just made there. There's exactly that. If one person goes, oh, do you know what? I I'll change my mind. I'll give it a go. I'll go to China and see what's like. And if that changes them and that changes their opinion and it makes them a bit more empathetic, then great. That's done. It's done its job, right? So, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I go. It's not. It's not a competition. I'm, I'm not trying to get people on like, oh, he's done this. And it's way better than this. It's not about that. It's about different types of travel, different experiences, and that equally got their own merit and for different people as well. That's right. And you said something earlier that I, I, I want to dig more into. You said the fact, it was something about storytelling. You were saying that there's a beauty to the fact that because I'm not on social media, it's refreshing because I'm telling you these stories and you feel like you can only get them through my mouth and through the way that I'm yeah. like, something about the fact that you can't access these stories any other way than through my storytelling. Is that right? Yeah. Or something like that? Absolutely. That. Yeah. And if I want to know more, I'm going to have to ring you and say, hey, do you, do you want to do the podcast, right? Because they're not on right. social media, apart from maybe that BBC Urdu video, which is a one-off, right? But yeah. yeah. And that's why audio is, I'd separate audio podcasts to social media and YouTube, right? Because audio is a bit more authentic. Deep. Yeah, yeah. It's deeper, so I think. Longer conversations. We can talk about uh, more serious topics, whereas I think uh instagram it's more superficial and and things like that um and and you know even the way you you got to know me through the eps uh, post you know i i was even hesitating to post or not i, I was thinking ah oh, should mm. i should i post or not and in the end it was a good thing because it, it got you to to get in touch with me and i think i think there's a point where being too secretive or being too... It's like a balance, right? Because yes. if I had never done that post, you would have never heard about me or known who mm. I was. And then I wouldn't be here now sharing these stories about Taiwan and, and Asia where people can learn a lot. So I feel like there's a balance that I need to strike where I share enough that I get opportunities like what you're doing now to mm -hmm. you know, get these stories broadcasted. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's, just, it's a balance that needs to be... Uh, it's a balance but also don't forget like there's no way from your travels so far what you know pakistan afghanistan in africa at the minute there's no way that i can get everything on record it's impossible anyway so we are going real high level here you've picked a few things that you remember that you liked which is great and it should be enough to entice people to maybe you know go to that country and check it out so there'll yeah. never be an occasion unless you like post every hour every day of your travels there'd always be something yeah. that's hidden right it's impossible to absolutely do all. And do you think there's more beauty to the fact that, um, like for example, that temple that I described in Yilong with the the ocean waves and the jungle behind and the the Buddha uh, golden statues? Mm. Do you think the fact that you can only hear it and you, it's a story that, and then you have to yourself sort of imagine it in your brain? Yeah. Do you think that adds beauty versus somebody that shows you directly an Instagram picture and then you see it, but then there's the lack of imagination, like the fact that people have to imagine what it's like yeah like i think humans we, we we like to be around campfires and telling each other like stories of okay i you know for for a long time like people would do that just just get around there was no photographs no video recording it was just getting around a campfire and uh and sharing stories that's a great point yeah you're, you're absolutely right because my imagination is almost running wild at me like what am i like trying to think of here what does it look like where is it 
who are these people that are taking up the hill? Like, I've got no idea, apart from what you just they described in audio form, right? And then yeah. imagine you put a picture of it. I'm like, ah, oh, that's what it looks like. There's no surprise apart from maybe the people that you meet that you don't know. There's no, when you get up to the top of that mountain to that yeah. temple, there's no surprise because you put a picture of it. And I, I take the piss out of my dad a little bit because he's like, doesn't travel, right? He's got no passport. He says, why are you going there? And I said, oh, because I, I want to go and see what it's like, you know, check it out. He says, well, you can watch it on TV or see it on social media. So what's the point? And it's, I'm totally against that. Like, no, you need to go there yourself. But there is a smidgen, there's a, there's a tiny bit of that, which has a little bit of truth in it. Because if you don't want to travel, you can travel through social media. You can follow like 400 social media accounts that are travel only. They do reels, they do pictures, and you get an idea what place looks like through a phone. So like, you can feel like you're traveling to an extent. It's not proper travel, but you can see where they come from with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, it's definitely an era where a lot of people are vicariously traveling uh, these days. Um, yeah. Like like I said, like, oh, I can just see it on television or I can just see it like, on the computer, but it's never the same. It's like somebody that would say, okay, I'm, what's the point of eating chocolate i can just see a picture of chocolate yeah you can just, yeah. Like, yeah it doesn't taste the same like when you have it in your mouth and you, you feel the sweetness with the, you know it melts like like or a great burger or whatever you like so so i think uh yeah yeah it's great and storytelling is um is definitely fun it, it gets the listener engaged i think that's what it is because then instead of just seeing the picture and being passive you actively yes become a part of the story by imagining imaginating what it was like there's a reason so, that storytelling yeah. is is so popular on podcasts right it's because people want to immerse themselves into the story and imagine what it's like i think some people might be more visual but a lot of people yeah. and I'm, I'm one of, of the latter group we we like hearing voices and the other thing is it's, it's very easy to get distracted when you're scrolling social media like whether it's mm -hmm. facebook or instagram whereas if you're tuned into a podcast like the one we're in now and people are following the conversation it's easier, I think, to once you're in and you're listening, it's easier to just stick to it and, and, and follow along because, I mean, unless, it depends on what you're doing. But if you're just, let's say, cooking the dish, you're cleaning the dishes while listening to this on a speaker or something like that, mm. you know, you can pay attention. But if you're on your phone just looking at pictures, boom, you swipe, okay, down, 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 you get to the next thing. It goes so fast. Whereas if you're listening, you can be driving and, and, and playing the podcast in your car. You can be doing something mm. else and you can be paying attention. Whereas, uh, you know, social media scrolling is just really fast. Yeah. And if you're driving for an hour and you heard us talk about China and Taiwan, you might feel like you've, you've been there and you've learned something and might even trigger something for you to go there. Right. Whereas if you just right. scroll, you forget a picture in a second, right? Unless you really like save it and try and find out. You just scroll, scroll, flick, flick. There's no value to that, I don't think. That's right. The reason I want to go to the stands is because they're quite talk about somewhere that's not documented too much. It's starting to get more documented. It is the sort of the Stan area, right? So Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, that area there. So where where did you travel in that particular region? Right. So I entered uh through China to Kyrgyzstan first. Yeah. And even that border crossing is I love land border crossings. So every day, twice on Sunday, I'll pick a land border crossing over flying in because you feel like you're changing worlds. And when I went from China to Kyrgyzstan, mm. you know, it's just crazy. You, you wake up in the morning, you're in China, everything is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just different. And then you, you cross 
and you get to this snowy mountain pass and then you get to Kyrgyzstan and the guys are speaking in Russian. They, they look Soviet. <laughs> the, the attire looks very Russian. And you yeah. can feel like you're in the Russian sphere of influence. You've changed continents, even though yeah. it's just, you know, a few kilometers. <laughs> so it felt like changing planets. You know, you, you get from the Chinese civilization to the <laughs> Russian influence. One, it is beautiful. And I remember seeing the guy like, Privyat, how are you, comrade? And, you know, it's just, <laughs> you, you teleported yourself, but you've only crossed a border on foot. That's right. It's crazy. Was that difficult border crossing or was that quite, quite smooth? It was difficult. You have to take a lot of different cars. And then uh, there's like a no man's land of 200 kilometers, something crazy like this. Oh, wow. And you have to take a, a car for two hours. Yeah. And I was with an Italian friend and a, an Australian friend that I had a random met and they were doing the journey as well. Mm -hmm. And then at, at the end, the last checkpoint of China, they drop you off. And then they say, okay, now you're out of China. You've got to walk to Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. Even at the edge of the country, it's not China anymore, but it's this sort of mountain pass. And then you walk on your foot yeah. and your feet, sorry. And then you, you turn a corner. And the first thing you see is like a Lada with a Kyrgyz guy dressed like a Russian soldier. Right. And he's like, uh, with a Russian accent in English saying like, welcome to Kyrgyzstan, get in my car or something. And, you know, and immediately the, the few words that I knew in Chinese, like uh, how how much and which means thank you. You've got to go to Russian, you know, boom. Yeah. You've got to go to Skolka, which means how much. And, but yeah, yeah, it was fun. So very cold mountain uh, uh, pass. Mm-hmm. Again, very freezing. You can, you can probably see, even though I'm from Quebec, I seem to be quite sensitive to the cold because <laughs> I would, my, my hands in Kyrgyzstan, it's a very high mountain pass and very snowy one. Yeah. And I was freezing so much because I, I think what there is is I don't prepare well enough. I, I don't foresee mm. weather changes and things like that. I was so cold. I had to put my hands while he was checking my passport. I had to put my hands in the little booth where the passport immigration guy was where, yeah. because he had a little heater. And I had to heat my hand through the window because I was freezing and like put my hands like a beggar trying to get some heat from his electric heater to, to heat up. Um, but yeah, once I got into Kyrgyzstan, it was great. You, you can do a lot of hiking there. People are quite nice, I would say. But the one I preferred more was Tajikistan, which okay. is... So Kyrgyzstan, they speak Kyrgyz, which is a Turkic language. And they've got sort of Asian features. Yeah. Uh, whereas Tajikistan is culturally closer to the Persian world. And they do speak Tajik, which is a dialect of Persian. Okay. And in Tajikistan, they look more European. Whereas in Kyrgyzstan, they look, like I said, quite um, Asian. Yeah. And yet Tajikistan was great. Of, the, of all the stuff, I didn't do Turkmenistan. I did Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. Yeah. In terms of funniness, Tajikistan ranks number one. Okay. So Tajikistan would be the place where the people were the nicest. Yeah. Because Kyrgyzstan has gotten a lot more tourists in the last few years. And you can already see that I would, from my perspective, I would say Kyrgyzstan is becoming a mainstream destination. Uh, there's a lot of people that are going there now. Okay. And not just here as adventurous travelers, but also, you know, your sort of Southeast Asian party crowd, they're, they're starting oh. to go there. So yeah, not, not a lot, but it's starting. Huh. It's, it's starting. Okay. So if you want to yeah. go, with, go now before it gets uh, even worse. Uh, whereas Tajikistan, you need a visa. It's an electronic visa. And mm -hmm. once you get in, very mountainous. I think it's even more mountainous than Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is a lot of lakes, a lot of green 
valleys and uh, hills. There are yeah. mountains, but it's also like hilly, beautiful lakes everywhere. So it looks like Canada, like the West, uh, you know, like Lake Louise. Oh, yeah. To Lake Louise. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, very, very beautiful. In terms of natural beauty, I would say Kyrgyzstan is the most beautiful one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you like hiking in, in beautiful places. But Tajikistan, culturally more interesting, less influenced by Russia. I found okay. that in the other stands, especially in Kazakhstan, people are more cold. And, and, you know, I haven't been to Russia, but the stereotypical sort of Russian look that you would think, okay, people are a bit serious and a bit, yeah. at least in appearance. I'm not saying once you talk to them, but in appearance, they, they look a bit cold and stern. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Tajikistan, much more warmer climate, more to the south. People are just more relaxed, friendly, chatting, and more um, outgoing. Yeah. And, and one that I really liked, and that isn't so touristy because it opened up very recently, is Uzbekistan. Uh, Uzbekistan has the best historical sites. If you like the Silk Road, if you like big, beautiful bazaars with a lot of things, and you feel like you're Marco Polo 800 years ago, Uzbekistan is the place to go. It's rising, Uzbekistan. There's, there's more stuff. Yeah, it is here. rising. You know what it is? It used to be that you needed a letter of invitation to go to Uzbekistan, and it was extremely hard, like okay. almost impossible. Like people would do it, but it took weeks. Yeah. Then in 2018, I'm very lucky. I think it was three months four months before I went, they dropped the letter. So you still need a visa. And now they've even abolished the visa. So visa free. Oh, okay. We're going to start going. I'm thinking this place changed for the last hundreds of years. I mean, of course, there's some cars, but mm. you have people selling big piles of fruits and, you know, <laughs> uh, almonds and pistachio and, and you can see the trade and, and, and just one of the biggest bazaars I've ever seen. In really nice. You, you can really feel that, uh, that Silk Road. Samarkand looks uh, amazing, actually. I think someone else recommended that oh, yeah. place um, a few yeah, episodes Samarkand ago. Yeah, Samarkand is my favorite place. Samarkand is my number one favorite place in Pakistan. Okay, um, yeah. I also like Buhara was great, but Samarkand was number one. Yeah, I think two people recommended that place. So, yeah, it looks pretty incredible and not as you know crowded as compared to other countries for the similar type of structures and, and mosques and stuff like that. Right. And I think, I don't know if people, I would imagine people go mostly in the summer or spring, but if you ever go in the winter, like, okay, sure, it might be cold and you have to, you know, gear up. But mm-hmm. if you go in the winter, I would imagine that you, there won't be a lot of people going uh, in the winter. Most of the tourists I saw in Uzbekistan were mostly baby movers, interestingly enough. Oh, okay. uh, not a lot of young people. Most, like most of the tourists were packaged tours from Europe, a lot of Europeans, yeah. a lot of Europe, but they're mm-hmm. package tourists. So, you know, it's not too bad uh, because they don't really interact with the locals that much outside of markets, Yeah, which means that the locals are friendlier. <laughs> Those type of tours, it's like a highlight tour, isn't it? It's quite rare that they, they dip into like real local culture that much. Yeah, they do. They, their effect will be on entrance fees and things like that because, of course, people like, oh, package tourists are coming. Okay, let's uh, charge that amount of dollars to see that mosque or things like that mm. but like i remember one time i took a taxi in samarkand and i wanted to pay the guy and he refused my payment which uh which is a sign that it was still quote wow. unquote virgin but, and the food is quite good uh, have you heard of kilau kilau no kilau plov. i think they call it plov it's like this uh, oily rice that okay. they do uh with uh, the bread is great too if, if you're a bread lover yeah, Uzbekistan is the place. They have very cheap, delicious bread. It's you know, massive loaf, nicely cooked. The the food is quite good in Central Asia. Okay, Kazakhstan a bit different because it's huge. Yeah. Kazakhstan is Kazakhstan, so big. Kazakhstan, the yeah. new capital, which I think now has changed again to Nur Sultan because the president died. 
but at the time it was called Astana. Mm-hmm. So what I got to see of Kazakhstan is Almaty, Astana, and the road in between. Oh, okay, right. The, the first striking thing about Kazakhstan is how flat it is. As soon as you leave Almaty, yeah. it's the step. So completely flat, which is a striking change from uh, Kyrgyzstan, which Kyrgyzstan, is yeah. hilly. Mm. Completely flat. You can look and you won't see a single mountain in, in the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Astana, have you heard a bit about Astana? Very special architecture, sort of futuristic look. It's a very funny city. Have you heard about it? I weirdly just know it because of football, as in soccer. Um, they have a semi-decent football team. But I, I have some pictures of the of the place as well. It, it's a bit weird because Kazakhstan have got so much money, right? Potentially. Yeah. Um, they're quite a rich exactly. country. And Astana very strange, very strange architecture, futuristic look with like the architecture is very modern. It feels yeah. like you're in a movie. Yeah, quite strange. Because I think, again, it's one of those countries that probably people probably think is quite poor, or it maybe is quite poor, but they do have a lot of resources to be rich. So maybe it'll start to come in the next 10 years that they'll start to build these like weird futuristic cities. But I will say I saw a huge difference. Like of all the stands, Kazakhstan definitely felt like the wealthiest. Okay. Like I remember seeing malls, like an Almaty going to mall. Yeah. More developed, wealthier, wealthiest of all the stands I've been to. There's also a, a, a significant Russian minority in Kazakhstan. I think it's 20%. One in oh. five people there is, a, is an ethnic Russian. Okay. And as a result of that, you don't stand out as much because people are used to seeing Caucasians uh-huh. and they'll assume you're a Russian person. Yeah. So that might also explain why I felt less hospitality because they just saw me and they probably thought, oh, this guy's just a Russian. Uh, yeah. It was still a very uh, nice place. And I would recommend if, if I go back myself, I'll try to go deeper into the, the wild parts of Kazakhstan, like not just Almaty and Astana, but the, the places where people don't go to. Yeah. And I think there it's possible to uh, have nice experiences, maybe in yurts or with some villagers and how long was your trip there in the stands in total in total in stands uh i think i entered on the 7th of april and i left at the end of may so it might have been six weeks total okay for budget what was maybe the cheapest at those lot the cheapest was in yeah. tajikistan the most expensive one kazakhstan easily okay. yeah kazakhstan is the most expensive one again there's that 20 percent russian minority and yeah. i think they themselves are quite wealthy and therefore you see that Prices are higher. Um, yeah, fair enough. Like it, I, that's why I said it almost feels like you're in Russia. Like I, I'm curious to see when I do go to Russia if, uh, if I'll see similarities with Kazakhstan. But in Kazakhstan, you know, you see a lot of Russians walking around. Of all the countries, it's all where everybody speaks Russian. In yeah. Tajikistan, only the elite speak. Uh, the uneducated people do not speak Russian. Okay. But in Kazakhstan, everybody speaks it. Ah, okay, got it. Yeah. Not surprised by the big Russian influence there and. Yeah, with the border with Russia right next to yeah, it. Yeah. So, you know, like the Americans, they send their uh, spaceships from um, Florida yeah. uh, into space. And then the Russians, I forget the name of the, the place, but all those Russian spaceships leave from Kazakhstan. But the territory is an enclave that belongs to Russia. Oh. So you can't go unless you've got a Russian visa. And I think even then you need a tour. But yeah, it's a shame. Oh, wow. But I would say, look, if yeah, I've got a limited amount of time, where should I go? If you love history, Uzbekistan is the place for history. Affordable than Tajikistan, but uh, not much more. Yeah. Tajikistan also has a lot of history, but less than Uzbekistan. If you're into hiking, then Kyrgyzstan is your place. Mm-hmm. Although you can also hike in Tajikistan, but it's there's less tourist infrastructure. Yeah. But yeah, Kyrgyzstan is the place where people love to hike. And then for Kazakhstan, um, I, I haven't done enough to, to really know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can do some nice horseback riding. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good summary of that sort of four countries there. I do think they're up and coming. I think they're starting to be definitely a bit more popular. Maybe it's time to get in. Yeah pretty soon yeah it's it's a bit of a do you have that feeling that almost every place because we talked earlier about pakistan we talked about taiwan mm. do you have this feeling that every place on earth is becoming more touristy or yep. something i don't know how it's <laughs> i guess it's because the population is exploding and space is finite so therefore if you've got a finite planet with an ever-increasing population yeah then the effects of tourism are going to be felt uh, more right Yeah, I think people have this ambition to maybe see somewhere that's not quite as generic. I think, especially travelers maybe of your age, maybe my age. Uh, I'm 10 mm-hmm. years older, but I think, yeah, people are starting to like, oh, I don't want to go to Bali. I want to go to like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. And then as a result of that, you'll see a lot more tour companies that are opening up to offer tours there. I think that's an easy way in for a lot of people. Yeah. Once, once tour companies start saying, hey, we can do tours here and people write blogs about them and then you get travel journalists that go on them as well and, and, and write about them. Then it's a slippery slope for a little bit. Well, I'll tell you one thing. You know, since the last time we spoke about Afghanistan, I know two people or at least one, an American guy who's been there because he knew that I had been there. And then of course, once he goes there, he'll tell people, Oh yeah, it's nice. And then another guy goes and it becomes this domino effect. And, and then everybody <laughs> starts going and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, there was a post on the passport my stamp the other day from an Australian guy who went to Afghanistan. I don't know if that's a result of seeing what you did, but he went there for two weeks and done like a similar report like you did. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I think I don't know if you influenced him to go, but yeah, you can see it in real life, can't you? Like, there's only two or three people, but those two or three people, each of one of those people, that's like 10 or 12 people, then it starts, right? So, yeah, yeah my prediction is that Afghanistan, if the government uh, stays the same, let's say, and, and they, they do want to promote tourism, I think it will explode in the future. Mm. but um i mean it's a bit of a shame because i was reading one of the reports might have been the australian one or somebody else and i already saw the difference between when i went and when he went because when i went i could see for example the minaret of jam yeah in the center of the country for free and i got there i, I got to um, have a tour walk up and everything and now this guy is paying an entrance fee yeah and i'm just like ah. Oh. soon it's gonna be like that <laughs> girl who went to fiji you know she got to see the beach and it was nice but you only need one person to go and tell everybody else yeah. and then it becomes commercial. Yeah. But I'm still optimistic. Um, I'll give you an example now that I'm in Namibia and I'm planning to go to Angola. Mm. Angola recently opened up. I'm curious to see what it's going to be like, but I, I'm sure that you can always find a place that is out of the way and, uh, and unspoiled if you try hard enough. Oh, I, I totally agree. I mean, Africa as, an, as a huge example, how many countries do people not go to? Most of them, right? People only go to South Africa or probably like Botswana or Namibia or maybe Egypt, uh, Morocco. Yeah, Morocco. But yeah there's like so, many, five countries. Yeah, so many countries in between that are definitely worth a visit. And even Kenya. Like, Kenya people go to, of course, the park and the safaris. But I was shocked because in rural Kenya, I, I, I know we might talk later uh, for another time about Africa, but briefly, mm-hmm. like in rural Kenya, I did meet some nice people and people respond the same way, regardless of where yeah. you are in the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, like you said about Africa, we are going to do another episode, maybe a bit further down the line for Africa. All right. I'm, I'm really enjoy- uh, I really enjoyed it. It was great. And I'm looking forward to uh, keep in touch. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel Podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode, 
as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel Podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.